We're talking about our government here. No, we're talking about a crime, Bill, pure and simple. Y'all gotta start thinking on a different level, like the CIA does. Now, we're through the looking glass here, people. White is black, and black is white. Just maybe Oswald is exactly what he said he was, a patsy. Hello and welcome once again to the Cinephiles, where this week we are continuing our epic and conspiratorial exploration of Oliver Stone's JFK. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. <laughs> Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host um, and voiceover artist here in San Diego, California, and very excited to be going back into the film Steve, that we we talked about of the of the actual film a whopping twenty four minutes. <laughs> so we hope we'll break that uh, pattern for this episode for sure. Well, I mean, there's a lot to dig into, and I and I think what's funny, you know, we didn't quite know how this would be received. Obviously, this is a topic that fascinates both you and I. Yeah, and we put it out there, and it seems like it is a topic that has fascinated a lot of people because yeah. as soon as we started talking JFK. The arguments about the conspiracy versus the Warren report versus we saw it all unfolding on social media in, 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 in I think, a really respectful cinephiles way. And it just it was great to see people as enthusiastic about this topic as you and I are. Yeah. I mean, I had a friend who I've been friends with since the 90s. Um, if you kids can remember the nineties, since the nineties, he texted me and he said to me, what are you doing on this show? And he goes, what? I go, what? He goes, how can you possibly think that there was a conspiracy? And so we went back and forth and look, this is one of my most intelligent friends. This man is friends with numerous writers who've written political biographies, who've uh, worked out of DC because we both used to live near DC. So he's the guy whose opinion I respect very, very much. He's a great writer. I've read a lot of his work over the years and we got to know each other managing bookstores and that's how he became friends. And then he kind of blossomed out, but he texted me. We just had a very strong and salty, but still friendly back and forth about our beliefs brought on because of us tackling JFK and talking about it as we did in the first episode. So I found it too fascinating. And at the end, we just said we have to agree to disagree because neither one of us was changing the other one's mind. So it's true. People still have very strong opinions about this who have grown up with this idea of JFK assassination conspiracy in their lives. Well, this is why I think this is – why well, I'm happy that we're doing the movie today, not just because it's the 60th anniversary and that right. it's a really interesting film, all of which is true, but also because we are all mired in this world of true. not really being able to agree on exactly what the truth is, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and figuring out how we navigate that I actually think is really important. And it's almost like I think the JFK assassination and, and the ensuing conspiracy theories – or not conspiracy theories, depending on how you look at them, is like it's almost like it's a good like uh, training situation for how you're going to deal with the world that we live in today and all the different bubbles that we're in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 he's the one. He said to me, he's like, "This is the thing that spawned all the conspiracy theories stuff that we have nowadays." And I'm like, I just don't see it that way. I see the JFK conspiracy thing as its own little bubble in a vacuum. And all the other weird ones we've been getting for the last few years, I, I to me, I just kind of put those in a tinfoil hat type of uh, place. So, 
that's how I, I see the differences in, in my, but that's the way I see it, right? And other people may see this as very correlative and the same thing. So create space for both uh, points of views on it, for sure. First of all, there have always been conspiracy theories. I mean, yes, like true. You, the you, right. there, there have always been these belief systems. And, and to me, what it is more is that the, to use an old Stephen Colbert term, the truthiness <laughs> of the conspiracy theory is often disconnected from how passionately people believe in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there, there, there are, there are certain conspiracy theories, which are complete bullshit. They're just yeah. like completely made up nothingness, but people can still find little in interesting coincidences, which to them seem like proof. And then they'll passionately believe some complete piece of idiocy. Well, that way that mechanism works is also there when there are real pieces of truth. You yeah. know what I mean? People will still set, look at the at the coincidences and look at little pieces of data and quote unquote do their own research and 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 figuring out how to separate that stuff out is really really hard. Yeah, I mean, like um, if you're a sport, any kind of sports fan, and certainly Steve, I know you you cheer for Cal football, but you know I'm, my my interest in sports is is larger, and yes. so. Uh, that is ingrained in a sports fan conspiracy theories, you know, the, that the refs are definitely against us. The league doesn't want us to win. Uh, the owner of the other team paid off the refs. That is baked into being a sports fan is the accusation. I mean, I'm a huge Liverpool fan. And a few weeks ago, we had this really controversial game against Tottenham. And in my opinion, I felt the refs were biased against us because of a couple of decisions that were so obviously incorrect. But they went ahead with them and didn't change it. And then they then they released the audio of them arguing over the call, which they have never done before. They released the audio. And you could hear from the audio, it sounds like there was just incompetence. But when you're a Liverpool fan, to you, you're right. like, how could they be incompetent if they're at this professional? So it's true. And it goes politically or it goes sports-wise. You can like massage any reason you want if you want to believe the conspiracy theory. So, yeah, yeah it's crazy. Here's an example, and we're we're now five minutes into this podcast. Oh, yeah, and I wait, promise wait, wait, yeah, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna jump in, but I want to give this because it's like a perfect example of how our brains don't handle this well. Which yeah. is, I don't know if you remember, but when the iPod, the very first iPod, first came out, okay. it had the random shuffle feature, so you could shuffle all of your songs. Right. Yes. I do and remember. people immediately complained that it was obvious that it was not random because. What? They were, yeah, because they would get, I've heard that song three times and I haven't heard this song at all. And so they complained to Apple app. This is not random. What? And, <laughs> and so Apple looks at their software, of course, and they're like, look, this is pretty simple programming. It is random. And nobody believed them because they had this experience because they'd hear a song again and go like, well, that I would, or they'd even go like, I was thinking about this song or doing something about this. And then that yeah. song came up. That's totally not random. And so Apple added to their random software a thing to make it essentially less random, but feel more random, <laughs> which is which is basically if you had heard a song recently, well, yeah. randomly, if you have a thousand songs, there's a one in a thousand chance that that song will play next, right? right? That's what random means. And what they put in this thing was like, don't play that song. If it's played twice already, let's not play it for a while. Let's yeah. put it lower on the list, <laughs> which makes it, in fact, less random, but makes it feel more random these artists have paid you guys to put their music first. I know it. Yeah. That's well, and this is what I mean is that what we can't not frame right. things the way we frame them. Like in our experience, if you have three bad calls in a row, which is yeah, totally yeah, yeah. possible yes. in terms of randomness. Sure. But seeing three in a row makes you go, that is not fucking random. There is a conspiracy. Obviously. Right. You, 
because you can't go, well, that's a unique experience that's never happened before right. and go like, wow, that's fascinating. No, it's because it's my team. It's clearly a bias or Absolutely. a conspiracy. And, and, what, and I think it's all, I think conspiracies are born. And again, we're not, we're going to get into the movie, but I think conspiracies are born <laughs> from this belief that the world is naturally unfair. And a lot of us are told that from the beginning of our existence, that the world's unfair. Life is tough, kid. You got to be harder. You got to get thicker skin. The world's not going to, you know, the people with money have it easier than, which, which is, you know, overall true in a way. And so you, you, you go in, so you're automatically from a very young age predisposed to believe that there might be people in charge who are making sure you don't achieve certain things. So it makes you more easier to believe in, or make you more, how can I say this? It makes you an easier target for conspiracy theories and what have you. So that's, that's probably where it comes from. And as a very basic sociological yeah. point of view, you know, here's a great test. All of us watching a game, uh, some kind of sports, have had the experience where three calls went against us, and we went, "Oh, they're 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 out for us. The fix is in." Whatever. Yeah. How often have you had the experience where three calls went for your team, and you went, "Oh, obviously there's a conspiracy. They're trying to make my team win." Nobody's ever had that thought. <laughs> Nobody ever thinks that. They just think this is awesome. Or they go, oh, the refs fucked up. Oh, well, they we, we got up. the advantage. We yeah. That's so the true. key. So okay. True. All right. So let's get back into this All film right, where we left part two. No. <laughs> <laughs> where, where we left off. We had just gotten off the fantastic plane ride with Walter oh, yeah. Matthau. Who wouldn't have wanted to take that plane trip with Walter Matthau? I certainly would. But that has put the bug into Jim Garrison's brain. And what is he doing when he's back home? He is reading the Warren Report, which is, you know, 26 volumes or whatever it is. Yeah. And we, and this is also the beginning of what is going to be one of our plot threads, which is Jim Garrison choosing the Kennedy conspiracy over his family. Jim. That was good, but honey, do you realize that Oswald was interrogated for 12 hours after the assassination with no lawyer present and nobody, nobody recorded a word of it? Well, honey, why don't we talk about it at the dinner table? It's getting cold. Yeah, we see this throughout this scene. And, and you know, this is a really fascinating, interesting scene in terms of, as you said, Steve, laying the groundwork here that the, the uh, what it looked like a loving relationship, a loving marriage initially uh, from the first uh, 24 minutes that we got the movie, we begin to show the cracks in this relationship through these next few scenes as Jim gets caught up in looking and reading the war report. And I want to I want to point out the techniques that Oliver Stone is using here as he's reading the Warren report, the flashes of light vacillating between black and white and color and hearing these words being spoken by the actors as if Jim Garrison is like simulating in his mind. Like we're in Jim Garrison's mind now as he's reading the Warren report and we're seeing what he thinks he's seeing in his mind when these witnesses are answering these questions and it's immediately making us question because we've already gravitated toward Jim's, Jim Garrison as this protagonist we want to follow and believe in when he's like, ask the question, ask the question. Ask the question, ask the question. All right, let's go back to that uh, Amos Sheeran's matter. Uh, yes, sir. And so we see already that because this is a guy we like, we now can take his point of view, make it our point of view, and start to question whether... Uh, there is a conspiracy going on here. So it's really well done by Oliver Stone here. It isn't just the overall direction of the film. It's these little scenes where he is make, messing with your mind to get you into this place. You know, I, I'm really glad you pointed this out. And, it, and it's not that people didn't 
have someone reading something and cut to their what they imagine that thing right. would be. That, right. It's not that that had never happened before. It's not a new no. technique. Right, right, right. But the way that Oliver Stone does it, and it is so consistent and overwhelming in, throughout this film, is unique. And it's and what Oliver Stone said, particularly about this sequence, is that the way that this happened, the way it came up, both in terms of pre-production and in terms of editing, was based on his reaction when he read the Warren Report, which is he said, reading the Warren Report made me feel like I was drowning. Huh. And the sensation of drowning in the information, of being overwhelmed by all of these things that didn't connect and didn't make sense, that's what led to this editing style. I love that. That makes so much sense. Yeah. And, and, and some of the things that we see the is is a lot of it at this section is really just the sloppiness of the investigation. Mm. And this is where I completely agree. Like the fact that they had Oswald and they didn't uh, record what actually was said in his first interviews. That's crazy. All of the the loss of chain of custody of evidence, the witnesses that were argued with, what they said, the things that we said that weren't followed up on. And of course, we go to what happened in Dealey Plaza, which is that all these people said that they heard shots coming from the glassy knoll. They didn't follow up on those things. And, and of course, what else is going on as he's talking about this stuff, both before dinner and then at the dinner table is... Liz, Sissy Spacek, his wife, is saying... He's a DA in New Orleans. Don't you think the Kennedy assassination is a little bit out of your domain? I mean, all those important people already studied it. I just can't believe a man as intelligent as Earl Warren ever read what was in those volumes. And this is where I push back on people who say this is a full-on conspiracy theory movie because in the film, there are numerous people who question Jim Garrison question his motives, question whether he should be doing it, question why he's doing it throughout the whole film. And these are not just the nefarious people. It's his wife. It's Michael Rooker, who we're going to see later in that, in that restaurant scene. These are people that are questioning his righteousness about this whole thing. And I like that. I like that it's an element here. And he is at times abusive towards Sissy Spacek. And we'll get to that scene where they're in bed together and he wakes up. But yeah, this is immediately putting, but Oliver Stone also cleverly has the black housekeeper say, I never believe that stuff. And so yeah. that kind of keeping in balance, right, as you're watching this, keeping the points of views in balance. So it's really smart how he constructs this dinner scene here with him and CeCe Spacek. Well, I also think that there's an important, and this is, and it's so funny because, as you know, I did a Star Trek podcast yeah, that yeah. was set in the 60s, and I one of the big epiphanies I had doing that podcast was there's this weird way in which Star Trek, the original series, is a conversation between the World War II generation and the baby boomer generation. Oh, uh, yeah. That, because you have Gene Roddenberry and all those guys, they're all World War II guys. Right. And, they, and so there's all this strength and order and trusting the military and the this the, Captain Kirk knows what's right, but then there's also this counterculture element that they're continually arguing with the reason i bring that up is that what sissy spacek is saying is come even though it's not that like during world war ii people didn't have problems with the government or the military of course they did but in the end we won the war and we had eisenhower as president and there was a feeling of america works these people know what they're doing yeah and in the 60s and post the kennedy assassination that changes and that's what's happening right here is that liz is saying Look, Earl Warren and the government has already handled this. You're just a DA in New Orleans. What the hell? Do you, why are you questioning right. the establishment, which we should trust? You know, right. 
Right. And I think that's why you costume her the way you do with mm-hmm. the hairstyle and the look. She represents the old South, the old way of thinking things. And so that's a great point, Steve. Yeah. One, one, by the way, other thing to point out is that the kid, Jim Garrison's son, that is Oliver Stone's son. He was in the doors as well. Yeah. Oh, is he? Yeah. And I also want to say is whether or not Jim Garrison is right about the the terrible inconsistencies within the Warren Commission report mm-hmm. has nothing to do with whether or not he's being a good dad at this moment. <laughs> and he's not. <laughs> yes. Right. And for much of this movie, he's not. No, he isn't. Yeah. And a terrible husband for sure. Yeah. When your kid is like, Daddy, look what I drew. And he's like, the Warren Commission <laughs> lied about this and this and this. You know, we're, you're, you're like, you're making a mistake here. Um, and then we get even to the, it's Saturday night and we're getting the kids to bed. And it's obvious that there should be some romantic, sexy time. And he promises it. Mama warned me this would happen if I married such a serious man. Well, you should did, huh? Mm-hmm. Well, when I come up, I want to show you how Saturday night going to be, huh? And she goes up to take care of the kids. And he's supposed to just briefly do something in the office before rejoining his wife. Cut to the middle of the night or middle of the morning. And he is still has never left those the Warren Commission. Report. Yeah. Have you ever been obsessed about something like this? Oh, yeah. Oh, of course I have. Where it's yeah. kept you up at night and like you're not going to bed till late and stuff like that. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, whether it's just as simple as I'm reading a book that I don't want to put down, but also, yeah, yeah, there have definitely been things where I've been trying to figure things out and stayed up far too late. (laughs) Yeah. And and I definitely have had the situation where my brain is obsessed with a thing that my wife is not interested in in the (laughs) least. That's great. (laughs) And, And again, we get into this thing that you're describing, which is we're reading about an interrogation. We see the Warren Commission doing the interrogation, and then we see Jim Garrison getting frustrated with the yeah. fact that they're not asking the follow-up questions. Flash of light or smoke or something, which caused me to feel that something out of the ordinary had occurred there on the embankment. God damn. And then what's really interesting, and this is again this Oliver Stone filmmaking technique, is a, you're seeing some of the craziness going on around the shooting. Right. And then as we're hearing this witness describe what he saw, we cut to a shot of that witness for a brief second that looks like he is dead and there's broken glass anywhere. And we have no explanation. We right. don't know what happened. It's only on screen. My guess, I should, I wish I had timed it actually. My guess is it's on screen for less than a second. Right. You know, it's enough um, for you to register uh, as kind of like a subliminal message. But it's enough to let me you think it makes you think, oh, was this guy killed because of the information he knew? Right. And this is this is the thing Stone will do lots of times, which is plant a thing with no explanation. And then later on, you'll see that thing again. It'll make sense. And the other one that's happening right now is we're seeing tiny little blurry snippets of the Zabruder film. Yes. um, Is intercut here. But we don't know what the Zabruder film is at this point in the film, unless you you, of course, knew what it was. Right. But I did. Right. Right. But it's smart, too, because he's also playing the real sound of a film, an old film. Exactly. So it's keeping you, like, in that place that there's uh, there's something um, going on here that's unsettling. I, I, I say what you want about Oliver Stone, and I have said plenty of things about Oliver Stone. <laughs> he was at the top of his filmmaking game when he was making this movie. Right. Look, Wall Street is his greatest film, in my opinion, but this mm-hmm. is his opus, period. This is – there's no – in terms of the – filmmaking style and the techniques yeah. he he emptied the toolbox in this movie completely and knew exactly yeah. how to put it together man. 
And then we have Jim waking up from a nightmare and waking his wife up and immediately going into Oswald and Russia. Yeah. Lee Oswald was given a Russian language exam as part of his Marine training only a few months before it defects to the Soviet Union. Then, of course, we're seeing it through Garrison's mind. And we I don't know if you have the real particulars on this, Steve, but who knows how much I mean. I don't know how many people know how much of this is true or isn't true in the way he's framing it chronologically in how he's presenting it. But to me, what sticks out of this scene is fascinating because we're watching this in 2023. It's the way he speaks to his wife, which is really dismissive and angry and him. And she's just sitting there going like, honey, this is obsessing you. You've got to sleep. You got to do it. I got kids at five in the morning. I don't have time to be dealing with this. Like I've got real world shit going on and you get to like, get caught up in this obsession stuff. You know why? Because I'm the wife taking care of, and the mother taking care of the kids. So you get to get crazy and good obsession. So it'd be real curious to see this film shot in 2023 or 2024 and the different approach to this relationship we might have. Cause this is very much a male approach to this relationship. And he is very dismissive of her throughout the film. And this is the first instance where you see the beginning of this dismissiveness when he yells at her and goes, I've been asleep my whole life. You know, when she's just trying to say, like, get some sleep or get some rest. And she's only saying that from a place of like, I care about you. I know what you're like when you don't get rest. Get rest. You know, you know, it's interesting. And and we'll go into this, obviously, in detail. The, the, mm-hmm. the framing, I would say, of this film, whether or not you believe this is true, mm-hmm. is that there's something here. Like that Jim Garrison is not crazy. That is the framing of the film. You could just as easily do this movie today about someone who is obsessed with conspiracy theories and they're not having dinner with their family and they're staying up to the wee hours of the morning and they wake their up in 430 in the morning to to go into, I'm not going to mention a particular conspiracy theory, but go into one of the ones that people believe in today. And the wife goes, I have the kids in the morning and it would be exactly the same. You know, it's the, the, and this is the thing I think about is there's so many movies, this has come up multiple times on the cinephiles where you and I have gone. What if the opposite was true? Of course, in the end of the movie, we find out that this is true. But what if, in fact, that character is crazy? Right. This is just a conspiracy. There is nothing there. Right. You know. I mean, and, and you're probably actually right, Steve, because, I mean, look at The Close Cows of the Third Kind is, what, 77? Right. And then you have uh, this film, which is 91, two completely different generations of filmmakers making, in essence, the same kind of film. And so, yeah, if you were to see something nowadays, probably the same thing would happen overall although I, although I do think the relationship would be treated a little bit differently i think it would happen overall and that's the difference right stone treats the relationship very male centric spielberg who's a much more empathetic filmmaker cares about his female characters a little bit more as you see terry gar's point of view about richard dreyfus and close accounts of the third kind and that's reflective of two different types of males making these kinds of movies how they portray these relationships so it's funny i i again we'll, we'll, we're going to move forward i promise yeah, but yeah. the 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 <laughs> Terry is that a in close encounters of the third kind we know that Richard Dreyfus is right because we were right. there 100%. we also know what movie we're seeing and who made the movie we know the real end yeah. and the second thing is it is more sympathetic to Terry Gar in many ways and Terry Gar is more horrible in many ways in right movie. later on yeah, yeah. you know uh, but uh, in this case regardless of his relationship with his wife Jim Garrison is now convinced that there's something here and we show up at this corner in new orleans and up comes lou and bill morning boys ready for a walking tour 7 30 sunday morning is not exactly fresh blood we're sniffing here boss and then we go on our little tour and we walk to 531 lafayette street it's amazing how these addresses are become like important mm-hmm. 
you know, I feel like the next time I'm in New Orleans, I'm going to have to go to 531 Lafayette Street. <laughs> There's got to be a JFK tour. Yeah. I Oh, there must be. Remember whose office this was in 63? Sure, Guy Bannister. And as we say that, and again, this goes into Stone's technique, is we see Ed Asner, Guy Bannister, coming out of that office. And he kind of almost floats out in the way that yeah. they shoot it. And what Stone describes this, he describes this as ghosts. These are the mm-hmm. ghosts of Guy Bannister or yeah. Oswald that we're going to see. And he purposely has him come out with like this angry, mean look on his face. So you immediately keep Guy Bannister in the evil category, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and what we find out is that Guy Bannister was A, ex-FBI guy, and B, super right wing. I used to have lunch with him. John Birch Society, Minute Man. Oh, yeah, I remember Shout that. to the right of Attila the Hun. The right of Attila the Hun is very right wing, is all I'm going to say. That's true. And then they walk around the corner, and I've this has always been one of those facts that stood out to me, is they come around the corner, and there is 544 Camp Street. And what we see is that 541 Camp Street and 531 Lafayette Street, two doors around the corner to each other, are the exact same office. Guess who used this address? The Harvey Oswald. And we see, I will say in Stone's word, the ghost of Lee Harvey Oswald come out of the door. Yeah. yeah. So we got the pro Castro Lee Harvey Oswald using the same office with the right of Attila the Hun ex FBI guy Bannister. Yeah. Yeah. John, you studied this for decades. Is there anything about this information that is, is incorrect? Uh, no, not about this information. The timing might be a bit off, but overall, no, the information is correct. Yeah, That's my understanding, too, is that Oz- it is true that Oswald was in that office with Guy Bannister. Yeah. Uh, and what we find out is that not only did they use that office, but he printed the address of the office on the pro-Castro pamphlets that Oswald was ha- handing out in 1963. Um, what's interesting, too, is the, the first printing of the pamphlet had that address on it after that probably guy banister said hey don't put our address on this pamphlet and the next printings didn't have it when they found this is something from one of the books i read Mm. the only leftover pamphlets that still have the address from that first printing were the 40 pamphlets they had stored at the fbi building oh wow (laughs) yeah well, this all goes into the, does that, what does that specifically mean? Right. I, it's sort of the, I don't know, but that feels weird. Why does the FBI, because mm-hmm. I think they had 40 copies of the first printing of this before they changed it, that they kept. The other thing that happened, which again, I believe is completely factual, is that Oswald got into a fight with some anti-Castro Cubans and was arrested and that the police officer who arrested them felt that it looked like a fake fight. Yeah. Yeah. And shout out to Tony Plana who yeah. is the actor who plays this character, Tony Plano, who has played every Latino from every country under the sun <laughs> before they started casting more Latino actors. Um, so it's always fun. I always forgot. I, I mean, I forgot that he was in this movie. It was nice to see him pop up as this argumentative guy with Lee Harvey Oswald. We don't really get too much information on him, except that he has these exchanges with him on the street and then later on a news program. Well, and, and it, what makes it so bizarre is that there's some possibility, and this one it seems a little more sketchy, but that Oswald, at the, on the same day or very close to when he had this fight, was also trying to hook up with anti-Castro groups. Yeah, yeah. You know? And then after this fight, he and 
the Tony Plano character end up on TV debating communism. Uh, no, Mr. Bringier, uh, I am not a, a, a communist. I'm Marxist-Leninist. You are not a communist, but you are a Marxist-Leninist. What is the difference? What is the difference? Yeah, I love that. Which really happened. This is what uh, what's the part of what makes this whole thing is like the weirdness of Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah. If right. If if he is just an ordinary dude, not he's yeah. not an ordinary dude. If he's not a U.S. intelligence agent or something like that, the behavior is so completely bizarre. Yeah. That you just can't figure, like, it just doesn't, he doesn't add up in any way. Wait, wait, but we know people like this, don't we, Steve? We know people who are like... Like Lee Harvey Oswald? A little bit. Like they're, like, they're weirdly intelligent, but they're also, like, really reserved and quiet, And but they're, like, when they blow up, they blow up that nerd rage, and so they're they're unsettling to be around. I, I, at least I've known people like this. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I definitely, I, I am literally picturing... <laughs> three people right now who were unsettling to be around and in, in, inconsistent and, yeah. and smart and all that stuff. Yeah. It's not that that I'm talking about. It's all, I mean, we'll get into it more when we delve more into Oswald's life in in the scene where Susie's giving her report later on. But For it's sure. just all of the, the inconsistencies mm-hmm. that are just so like, wait, wait, he was here and then he was here and then he did that. Yeah. What? Yeah. It's really strange. Um, and then the other thing we start talking about is that, before Bannister was FBI, he was ONI, Office of Naval Intelligence. And then what they point out, and I just love this moment, is where they're standing. We're right near the ONI offices. And then Jim says, Lou, we are standing in the heart of the United States government's intelligence community here in New Orleans. That's the FBI there. All right? That's the CIA. That's the Secret Service. That's the ONI. Now, doesn't this seem to you a rather strange place for a communist to spend his spare time? I don't know that Jim Garrison ever walked out into this right. you know, square to point this out, but Oliver Stone filmically is doing something brilliant by he setting us in this location and making us look around. And then he says, we're going back into the case, Lou. Murder of the president. You got to wake me up. I must be dreaming. Yeah, and and I love the shot because it's almost in a way mirroring what possibly happened to Kennedy is this triangulation. And they're they're in the center, right? This idea of what of what might have happened to Kennedy and some of the accusations, conspiracy theories, is triangulation of fire. And so he's talking about, and the way he lays it out, and it's smart because he lays it out. And again, Stone shoots this so well with the quick cuts, with bringing back characters that you've seen already, with the different uh, shots of the television program or the battles on the street. All of that keeps you interested. You know, keeps it keeps your attention. And so by the end. He is showing you everything you need to know, and Garrison is explaining to you why he feels this way. So you have, we're all on the same page, this uh, triangulation of intelligence agencies, all of it congregating in this one area of New Orleans. So really smart to walk the audience through it, but make it entertaining as he's getting them to understand the information. You you know what else it is, is, which literally just occurred to me now and was really based on the conversation that we started with, which is... Mm -hmm. The location, the fact that these agencies are located all in this area and that Bannister's office is also near here, that's just a coincidence. Yeah, I mean, right, it's right. not a coincidence that the offices are located near each other. There's probably good practical reasons why they're of located course, near yeah. each other. You know what I mean? But what it feels like after you've heard about Bannister and Oswald mm-hmm. and the addresses and the handing out the pamphlets and all this stuff, and then you look at where you are, it doesn't feel like it feels like evidence. Yeah. 
Right. You know, that's what it feels like, even though it's just some addresses that are near each other. <laughs> John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old. And this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards, and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then... Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. And the next question we have is like, how do we find out about David Ferry, which is, you know, where we were in our last episode and we cut to this horse race and we cut to Jack Lemon. Yeah. And again, I know I said I sung their praises already in the first part, but man, the old guard that, that gets brought in for this movie, including Jack Lemon and um, Ed Asner and later on Donald Sutherland, man, they and, and Walter Matthau, they all come in and kick ass. And Jack Lemon in this scene is fantastic. I agree with you, Stephen. And yet, and, and yet again, this is so well edited because Stone slides in the sh close-up shots of the horses, slow motion shots of them breathing, running on the track. So you sense this kind of danger, even though there's like four people in the stands, he, he cuts to some dude that looks like he might be an undercover FBI agent just sitting there in the stands randomly reading the paper and looking over. So the way they construct this scene as Jack Lemon's character is talking about that uh, situation with Guy Bannister, we're like caught up in all of this, constantly being, you know, uh, caught up in what he's doing and following and feeling the tension. You know, when I watched the Ocean's 11 scene where they go to convince yeah. Saul to be a part of it, because that's also at a racetrack. Yeah. And it's so interesting how these scenes can mirror each other, but have the different intention within them 
but no less. But both of them are shot really well to get the overall point at the end. So I thought it was really well done. With no evidence whatsoever, I am almost certain now that you say that, that Soderbergh was thinking of this scene when he shot that scene. Probably. And, and you know what I just did? I came up with a conspiracy theory. <laughs> I, I, I said, I have no evidence, but it seems so obvious that they're so similar now that you said it, that now they're connected in my brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it could be that Soderbergh's never even seen JFK. I'm sure that, again, I'm sure that's not true. And, and I also think it's like, why does seeing slow motion horse and an extreme close up of a coffee cup make me more stressed? I don't know the answer, but it yeah. definitely does. It definitely does. And it's also, man, Jack Lemon. I, you know, we talked about who are the best at reaction shots, mm -hmm. and Jack Lemon watching this movie is up there. Just the little flick of his eye, the little kind of tilt of his yeah. head. It's just super, super powerful. And they want to find out why did Guy Bannister pistol whip you the day that Kennedy was killed? Yeah. And he, it's very clear he doesn't really want to answer and he's resisting. I don't think I should talk about it. Well, I'd ask God. We were friendly, you know. Heart attack, wasn't it? Well, you buy what you read in the papers. And then finally he says, Oh, hell, I guess guy's dead. It don't matter no more. It was about all those people that was hanging around the office that summer. Now what we see is all of the people that were coming in. Yeah. And who are some of the people? Well, David Ferry is there. See, the whole thing, this was the whole cloak and dagger stuff, you know. They called it Operation Mongoose. Mm. Whole idea was they were going to train these Cuban exiles, you know, for another invasion of Cuba. Mm -hmm. Well, Bannister's office, that, that was part of the supply line, you know, from Dallas through New Orleans to Miami. That Bannister had set up this training camp up by Lake Pontchartrain and that Ferry is doing a lot of the training. And who do we see as part of this training is we see Lee Harvey Oswald. The guy he claims to have not known. And the thing is that's the thing is fascinating about this is some people might look at this scene and be like, oh, you know, this is all fabricated bullshit. But like, look what's happening in our world. Certainly the idea of militias has been around for quite some time. And the idea of training people to attack a government or defend themselves from a government, all of that has ratcheted up over the last ratcheted up over the last few years. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that these guys could take it upon themselves to go and you know do their own camp or whatever and as we hear more and more stories of people in um uh people in law enforcement whether it be polit whether it be uh from cia fbi uh, or whatever or the police they have their own right wing well i don't say right wing but their own kind of points of views that are very hard and why wouldn't they turn a blind eye or why wouldn't they participate so you know, this idea that it's just something some kind of crazy conspiracy no there's a lot of people who have very strong feelings about these uh, kinds of things, if they see a threat to themselves, a threat to the government or whatever. And so creating a militia and see, and having willing followers in a militia is not out of the realm of possibility. So, uh, you know, seeing this scene in 2023 had a much more meaning to it for me now than it did when I saw it uh, back then. Well, and I will say it is not only is it not out of the realm of possibility, I think Operation Mongoose is pretty well documented. Yeah. There really, is, there really was a CIA a uh, conspiracy to use uh, Cubans who were anti-Castro, who had fled Cuba, to go back and attack Castro's Cuba and with the possibility, you know, and obviously this is connected to the Bay of Pigs. This yeah. is also connected to the CIA. And it's also well documented that the mafia was involved in this and well as well and supporting it because they wanted to get rid of Castro. And the CIA and the FBI 
and this is this is one of the key things in in how you parse through all these conspiracy theories is there's this weird split because in the 50s the CIA and the FBI saw the mafia as tools that they could use to get their goals mm-hmm. and J Edgar Hoover and the leaders of the CIA were okay with that on some level and felt they had the power and at the same moment the Kennedys come in and Robert Kennedy is the attorney general. Their mission is to go after the mafia. And so there's this weird split where part of the U.S. government. And again, I don't think I'm spouting conspiracy theories here. I yeah. believe that this is pretty well documented and true. Part of the U.S. government is aligning itself with organized crime. And part of the U.S. government is coming after the organized crime. Yeah. Um, and that's part of what makes the problem. Here's what's not documented is that we see Lee Ar- Harvey Oswald as part of these training camps. Right. And Oliver Stone himself in the commentary track says that this is complete speculation. There's no specific evidence that Oswald was at any of these camps. And then of course the, and again, this is why this leads you to a rabbit hole because I then went, well, when did these camps exist, which are kind of well-documented and when was Oswald in Russia? And he was in Russia from October of 1959 to June of 1962. Now, the Bay of Pigs is in 61. It's in April 17th, 1961. So for most of the time that these camps were operating, because after the Bay of Pigs, they started to get dismantled, which is what David Ferry is mad about later in the movie, is for most of that time, Oswald was in Russia. He wasn't there, or or I think he was in Russia, (laughs) you know? So, so like, this is where you go, but if you're just watching the movie, the movie kind of says Oswald was there, Yeah, you know? And, and, and to be fair, Stone needs him to be there to keep pushing the conspiracy theory that he was essentially trained to be a part of this, you know? Oswald? Yep. Yeah, he was there, too. He, he was, was there. there. He was there. He was sometimes meeting with Bannister. One thing we haven't talked about much, John, is that the version that is available today that most people would see is the director's cut. Yeah, I am. And it's like, I think, 18 minutes longer. Yeah. My feeling, because I did look through and see what some of the director's cut stuff was, is most of it doesn't add too much. No, it just In, kind of fleshes out what's already there. Yeah. Yeah. And this is one of the moments where uh, in the this would be the end of the scene in the regular ver- in the theatrical version. In the director's cut, we go a little bit further and we see this person that is meeting with uh, Guy Bannister, which is Tommy Lee Jones, Clay Shaw, and that he seemed to be a very important person. And this is where we would first hear the name Clay Bertrand in the director's cut. Yeah. And then at the very end of the scene, as the subject of Clay Bertrand comes up, Jack is getting nervous. Look, I, I, I gotta go. That's hold all on, I'm gonna hold say. Hold on, Jack. Enough. Hold on. What's the problem? What's the problem? What's the problem? Do I have to spell it out for you, Mr. Nope. Garrison? Nobody knows what we're talking about here, Jack. Well, you are so naive. I love the way he says naive, to dragging that E out. You're so naive. I love that. He's great. I, I don't remember what the last Jack Lemon film is, but this is the last image I had. I, I, maybe um, Glenn Gary Glenn Ross is after this. Yeah, yeah, remember, yeah, which is a movie. Man, we've been talking about doing that movie I since know. the beginning of the show. We got to do that one next year for sure. Cut to a restaurant, and we hear this voice <laughs> talking about a woman, and there we see John Candy playing Dean Andrews Jr. Pipe the bimbo in red. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's cute, all right, but not half as cute as you, Dino. Thank you. Man, this scene is so electric, and what a surprise, right? And you talk about 
final scenes with actors. This is one of my favorite scenes, of course, from John Candy, who we lost way too early. And the way he shoots this scene, John is shining. He's got the bright flannel suit on, the white um, uh, the white shirt and the, the even his cheeks with the little bit of sweat that are on them are kind of glowing in the light. His sunglasses are more just more radiant than they than they usually are, and everything about this scene is so interesting. So he he really frames and shoots Candy in such a gr- great way because he highlights him very clearly in this scene between him and Kevin Costner, and it's a glimpse of what the future would have been if Candy. Yeah hadn't passed because he's such a great dramatic and uh, and um, uh, comedic actor. I have no doubts he would have won an Oscar down the road at some point like Robin Williams did. So uh, just a great scene between these two guys. It's such an example where John Candy went to 100% with this character. Yes. He didn't hold anything back. He went, I'm going full on. And that is a precarious position for an actor where you can easily crash and burn. And it is the opposite. It is so great. And it's funny. As we were getting ready to work on this thing, I think you texted me something about the character yeah. of, that John Candy plays. Well, I have now seen footage of Dean, the actual Dean Andrews. Yeah. John Candy nails it. Some yeah, of the did. lines like the, you know, my cabeza and the tatas and whatever, whatever the whole thing is. That's how this dude talked. Well, I don't know what he's up to. He's picking me like chicken, shucking me like corn, stewing me like an oyster. I mean, he ain't put nothing down but air. So I'll give him two names, see which way he's going. Why are you dancing on my head for, my man? We've been thick of molasses pie since law school. conning me, Dean. I read your testimony, the Warren Commission. There you go again, grain of salt. You tell them the day after the, the assassination, you're called on the phone by this Clay Bertrand and asked to fly to Dallas and be Lee Oswald's lawyer. Right. The whole way he speaks is so great. He's a, he's a New Orleans character for sure. They put the heat on my man, just like you doing. I gave him anything that popped in my cabeza. Truth is, I never met the dude. And then we cut to Dean in a black suit with Clay talking to him, which immediately says that he is now lying. Yes. Right? And I, and I just want to talk about how this operates in this film in terms of filmmaking technique. And I'll try to be brief. But, like, let's say we're in a romantic comedy. Yeah. And we have a girlfriend and a new boyfriend. And they're meeting the girlfriend's best friend. And the moment they meet, the boyfriend and the best friend have a little look. And the girlfriend says, oh, do you know each other? And the boyfriend says, no, never met. And then we cut to a shot of them making out. Right. right. Him making out with the best friend. Well, now the filmmaker has told us that this character is a liar, that they've had an affair, and what the reality is. And the way filmmaking works is that we as the audience, it's not just that the filmmaker has told us something and we can choose to believe it or not believe it. That is the truth, you know, because we saw it. And so in that reality of that film, that boyfriend has slept with the best friend. Yeah. When we see Dean meeting with Clay Shaw or later meeting with Oswald or all these other things that we're going to see where Oliver Stone, the filmmaker, has no evidence that those things actually occurred. Yeah. It is not just that Oliver Stone believes that that happened. In the reality of this movie, Mm -hmm. I think that did happen. I think, you know, it's like we've got all these multiverse movies out there where we can go, well, in this reality, Thor did this. And in this reality, (laughs) Loki did that. And And this is, well, in the... In the alternate reality of the movie JFK, it's not that there might be a conspiracy theory. There is a conspiracy theory. It is true because I've seen it. I saw Oswald talking to that guy. I saw Ferry talking over here. I saw them doing this thing. So, uh, So in this world, this is truth. That's what I wanted to point out. 
Uh, and we we kind of do this back and forth where he's telling in the restaurant that he doesn't know Oswald, that he didn't go to Dallas. Then we're seeing in these flashback scenes that those things are not exactly true. Right. There wasn't no conspiracy, Jim. If there were, why the hell didn't Bobby Kennedy prosecute it as attorney general? He was his brother, for Christ's sake. I think that is a great question. It is a smart, again, when you go and look at this film and people dismiss it as, oh, it's just a conspiracy film. Stone bakes in questions that people have about the conspiracy. He is fair in how he is presenting the conspiracy theory. Having this character, who is a very interesting, vibrant character, ask a logical question, just like Sissy Spacek asked earlier in the film when she said to him, you know, smarter people than you have looked at this thing, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, John Candy is essentially saying the same thing here to Jim Garrison. He's essentially saying to this, why didn't Bobby Kennedy, which is what a lot of people who counter these conspiracy claims about Jack Kennedy's assassination fall back on. That's his brother. He was the attorney general with all the power of the judicial branch in his control. He could have gone after anybody who was involved with killing his brother. So I like that he put that into the conversation here in the movie. I think it's one of the best points against the conspiracy theory, mm. or, or particularly the conspiracy theories that uh, that Jim Garrison is or Oliver Stone are bringing up. I think what RFK's choices are in the immediate aftermath of the assassination, because and what happened, you know, things like what happened to Kennedy's brain and who was in charge of the autopsy and a lot. RFK to some degree is involved in some of that. Yeah. And it's hard to figure out exactly what he but why he makes the choices that he makes yeah. are really weird. It's hard yes. to it's hard to understand it. He was a weird cat. So, you know, he's not just a heroic guy that people remember who was sadly assassinated in 1968. Do your research on Robert F. Kennedy. He had some really strong opinions. That's why when I see RFK Jr. now, he yeah, people say, oh, he's staining the legacy. You know, Robert F. Kennedy wasn't necessarily the nicest dude. And he had some very strong opinions about certain things and certainly there's a lot of accusations you mentioned earlier steve that the that the joe kennedy the dad worked with the mob to help sway oh, yeah. the state for jack kennedy that ended up putting jack kennedy in the white house so when robert kennedy was going after the mob a lot of mob people were pissed because they put kennedy in the white house in their opinion and so there's a there's certainly some lines that robert kennedy crossed uh in his own politic in his own way politically that you might question his intentions in a lot of ways. Well, in the big book that I read on the Kennedy assassination yeah. recently, where really the real th theory that they're putting for us, it is, it is the mob yeah. is that they said, you know, kill the head and the snake will die. We want to get RFK to get off our backs. The best way to do it is to kill his brother. Yeah. That's the, that's the basic conspiracy. The other thing too, there's a huge difference between 1960 or even 1963 RFK and yes. 1968 RFK. That guy evolves a lot. The other thing, too, is that Johnson, it, it, even if John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson didn't get along, yeah. that was nothing compared to how much Robert Kennedy hated Lyndon Johnson. A hundred percent. And vice versa, which is why Johnson dropped out in 68 when Kennedy was coming in for the nomination. He didn't want to go toe to toe with him. He was exhausted by it all. Well, and it all, but it also makes it even muddier. It's like, well, if... You hate Lyndon Johnson yeah. and your brother just got killed. Yeah. Why are you not investigating this more? You know, this is what, well, and again, 
This is why you will never get to the end of the Kennedy assassination. There's just no getting there. And right now, Jim Garrison is trying to get there with Dean, who keeps avoiding the questions. Now stop eating that damn crab meat a minute and listen. I'm aware of our friendship. But I want you to know, I'm going to call you in front of the grand jury. You lie to the grand jury. You've been lying to me. I'm going to charge you with perjury. And I took nine judges on right here in New Orleans, Dino. I beat them all. So am I communicating with you? I think Costner's great in this moment. Mm-hmm. And, he, and I love I love John Candy. Is this off the record, Daddy-O? Not a lot of people could pull off Daddy-O. No. Oh, my God, no. But he did. If I answer that question you keep asking, if I give you the name of the big enchilada, you know, then it's Bon Voyard Dino. I mean, like, pull a minute. I mean, like a bullet in my head, you dig? You're a mouse fighting a gorilla. Kennedy's as dead as that crab meat. It's great speech. Yeah, yeah. And Jim doesn't back down. And Candy stands up loud and says, You're as crazy as your mama. Goes to show it's in the jeans. You have any idea what you're getting yourself into, Daddy-O? The government's going to jump all over your head, Jimbo, and go cock-a-doodle-doo. Good day to you, sir. Great button on the scene. You know, that's how you walk out of a scene, you know. (laughs) I think you and I need to do some more cock-a-doodle-doo. Good day to you, sir. (laughs) Well, listen, I mean, the fact that he made Daddy-O... You dig and cockadoodle do work within a few seconds of each other uh, and make it believable and authentic. That speaks to the talent of John Candy for sure. I agree, and I and I also think that's also you can't if he hadn't gone a hundred percent. Yes, he, he would have failed. Good point. Yeah. You get handed that dialogue, it's like, well, I got to go for it. <laughs> let's go to prison. Okay, yeah, let's go. And we're going to meet, and again, I really didn't remember all the people in this movie, mm-hmm. and we're going to meet Kevin Bacon, who plays Willie O'Keefe, and I think Kevin Bacon is fantastic. This character, Willie O'Keefe, is, uh, um, the, the, I think they were saying in the, in the behind the scenes or whatever, that the guy who cheers for Kennedy's assassination right. in the bar at the beginning of the movie is the guy who they base Willie, Keefe, Willie O'Keefe on in the movie. And he is uh, a very disarming character. Yeah. Is that he claims to be just totally fearless and I'll answer whatever questions you want Mm -hmm. and what we find out is that he met Clay Bertrand in June of 62 at the masquerade bar sexual purposes well yeah did he pay you for this $20 each time hell ain't no secret that's what I'm in here for (laughs) and then we start to get this story we get some descriptions of this Clay Bertrand who again we're seeing is Tommy Lee Jones yeah, And then in 63, he's at some party and there are a bunch of Cubans there and David Ferry's there. And they say, and that's where you first met Oswald. Yeah. And I really, again, I like the moment where he goes to shake hands with Oswald and Oswald won't shake his hand and says, yeah. what the fuck is he doing here? Yeah. I, I think the combo of Stone and Gary Oldman do an incredible job of making Oswald this enigma. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So good. And then David Ferry, uh, Joe Pesci, starts to go off on Kennedy. Fucking little ass wife closed down the camps, took all our C4, took 10,000 fucking rounds, 3,000 pounds of gunpowder, all our fucking weapons. Joe Pesci just goes nuts, totally out of control, screaming about Kennedy. Yeah, but you know, again, like we know the Oswald people, you know the people like David Ferry who are like, Rant and rave, but he's like Ike Clanton. Rant and rave, and don't do anything once the time uh, once the time calls for it, right? I mean, he's he's such a docile little animal when he goes to speak to Mister Garrison and or uh, Jim Garrison, <laughs> Mister Garrison. But like, 
but here, of course, amongst the people in his protective cocoon, he'll say all kinds of shit and and really feel himself and feel his nuts. But we all know Jay Z said it best, you know, um, loud as a motorbike, but wouldn't bust a grape in a fruit fight. So those are the differences there with what uh, uh, David Ferry is. I don't know. So are, are so therefore are you saying that he is not partially responsible for killing Kennedy? I no, mean, this I'm, you know, I'm saying he's he's a blowhard, and I don't know how big his part was actually. Mm. And he's a guy who kind of creates bigger things than they actually are. And feels himself when he actually is a is a pussycat, you know. It's this is what so a this scene might be based on some pieces of testimony, but yeah. this is mostly invented by Oliver Stone. Yes, you know what I mean. Yeah. Like particularly, we have no even if you know there is no William O'Keefe character. He's based on somebody else who did testify uh, testified to knowing Clay Bertrand slash Shaw. Right. But whether or not I don't know how much he talked about this party and certainly what this thing is is we don't really know. But what we do here is Dave Ferry not only going off on Kennedy, not only going off on uh, all the kinds of uh, poison and ways they had to attack the beard. I love that they call Castro the beard. That is the, uh, that is the nickname for him for many yeah. years. Yeah. An inspired act of God should happen here, okay? And put a Texan in the White House. Así los comunistas, mira. And that's Stone. That's Stone attaching yeah. LBJ to this conspiracy theory through this um, supposedly insane Cuban who's just yeah. getting upset about everything. Yeah. Well, and then, uh, you know, I guess it's later on in the party, David is acting even stranger, talking about attempted assassination on Charles de Gaulle, talking about open vehicles and Eisenhower, talking about mechanics. And mechanics is a CIA term for agents in the field. Yeah. Now he's talking about triangulation and a crossfire and a diversionary shot. This sounds a lot like the Kennedy assassination. Yep. And, and again, it's a weird scene because it's like, okay, the if these are the people that really did it and they're just talking publicly at a party with a bunch of people that aren't involved is so dangerous. And I do like the moment as, again, Joe Pesci's great, continues yeah. to go off on Kennedy, continues to go off on killing him, continues to get more and more specific that Tommy Lee Jones shuts him down and like pinches him or something, yeah. you know, to get him to stop talking. Pinches his penis. Is that what, oh, is that oh, what yeah. happens? Oh, yeah. Why don't we drop this subject? It's one thing to engage in badinage with all these youngsters, but this sort of thing could be so easily misunderstood. <laughs> well, that's why he's in charge of this whole thing. Yeah. Because he knows if they're going to do this, he knows there's a way to do this and there's a way not to do this. And the way not to do this is to draw attention to it which is what David Ferry is doing. Yeah. Uh, uh, again, I'll, I'll ask this question as someone who's, who's studied mm. this stuff. You've already sort of said that I, I get the sense that you're saying that David Ferry's involvement in your mind might be less than where Oliver Stone would put his involvement. What do you think about Clay Bertrand's or Clay Shaw's involvement? Oh, I think he was involved for sure. Yes. I mean, I don't think he was the you know mastermind behind it all, but I certainly believe he was involved because he's a power player down there. And if you're going to do certain things, you got to be a power player. And the best power players are the quiet power players. You know, I just finished watching a three-part documentary about how they got John Gotti that's on mm. Netflix, Get Gotti, which is a really fun um, and interesting three-part doc. But, you know, the big thing was he made such a, a target out of himself that it was it was inevitable that he was going to be taken down or killed 
by people in his own organization. And so the people that want to move uh, real money, they want to be real power players, they don't draw attention to themselves, and they move quietly behind the scenes. And Clay, and Tommy Lee Jones does a great job in this portrayal, he radiates that when you're Mm. watching him, right? He's very calm. He doesn't lose control. He's always talking respectfully, but gives what he wants to give and holds back what he wants to hold back. So yeah, I do think he was a part of it. I don't think it was a big part of it, but I do think he was a part of it. Gotcha. Um, the, and we go back after these flashbacks back to prison. Uh, and again, I think that the choice of who this Willie O'Keefe guy is, mm. is really interesting. What I need to know is why, all right? Why are you telling us this? Cause that motherfucker Kennedy stole that motherfucking election. That's why Nixon was going to be one of the great presidents till Kennedy wrecked this country. He promised those motherfuckers too goddamn much, you ask me. Revolution's coming. Bullshit, man. Fascism is coming back. I'm going to tell you this. The day that communist son of a bitch died was a great day, a great day for this country. I always find it interesting because we think of our sort of political alliances as fixed. Yeah. And, and therefore, you know, this group is more for this and that group is. And it's always been that way. But it's not. This guy hates is a gay man in prison hates Kennedy for being a fascist, you know, like it's such a, it's such a different sort of, uh, way of looking at the world. And of course he also expresses these horrible racist statements and all, you know, this other stuff, because that's where he is. Uh, so we're heading away from him. And again, the button on the scene is, you know, you're not a bad looking man, Mr. Galson, not bad looking at all. I get out of here. I'm gonna come see you. We can have some fun. First of all, the scene is so well-written. And the swerve is perfect because if you're on the side of this guy and he's telling the truth about the conspiracy theory, you're like, yeah, tell him, give him the information. And then when he switches and goes that he's against Kennedy and he wanted the proper credit to be given to the people who killed Kennedy and not Lee Harvey Oswald, it is a great swerve. But the end moment, I don't know if the end moment is, I guess it's meant to alleviate the tension. You have a little joke. This also works as the leading man to be wanted by both men and women. Uh, and But also, it could be seen as a little um, uh, homophobic because he's making this appeal to Garrison in a certain way. So it's a fascinating button to the scene, but it works. And no matter what your point of view is, I think it works. So it's, it's a really well-constructed and written scene. We are driving away, and the first thing that they're talking about is, can we really put this guy on the stand? You know? Yeah, right. Uh, and the big thing they want is to find Clay Bertrand. And so he's with Wayne Knight, who he says, you know, <laughs> like he says, I didn't pick you because of your legal skill, you know. Gee, thanks, boss. Because you're a fighter. Fucking man is not afraid of bad odds. Uh, which I like. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we head into a, uh, the restaurant to Antoine's, which is a very famous, you know, 100-year-old New Orleans uh, establishment that I've always wanted to go to. So it's mm. more of my New Orleans plans when I take this trip. <laughs> um, and we sit down and we start talking through things. Find out anything on those hobos? Photographer from the Dallas Times Herald got some great shots of them. And by the way, in that uh, JFK revisited documentary that Oliver Stone does, he definitely says that he was wrong about this. Yeah, because yeah. after the movie JFK, the Dallas police... Uh, department released all the interviews with these tramps that they had arrested that Jim Garrison was complaining that they didn't have. And Stone 
which I think is really admirable, says he was wrong about this. This was not a point to really worry about. And then in comes Susie, Laurie Metcalf. Oh, so great. Fantastic. Yeah, she's radiant. I love Laurie Metcalf, yeah. And she's not based on a real character. Mm. She's a little bit of a composite, but there really wasn't a woman that had Mm. this kind of a role in that uh, staff at that time. And Stone wanted one. And so that's how she got created. Fair enough. And the first thing they start asking her about is this railroad man, Lee Bowers. Graveyard dead, August this year, single car accident on empty road in Midlothian, Texas. And then we see the shot we saw earlier of this dead guy. Yep. I think it's a great payoff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, it goes like, oh, oh, like you're watching the audience and you're like, oh. And then we also see that the Sally Kirkland character, who was the woman who was thrown out of the car, who was warning about the Kennedy assassination, uh, that she's dead too. And we see her body. Now we're going to get a huge information dump about Lee Harvey Oswald. And uh, what I would like to do, John, is to kind of just talk through the Oswald history. Sure. And then talk about what's happening filmically while this information is getting 100%. Absolutely. Okay. Because, and I, I know I said this in part one. We've talked about it a little bit in part two. This dude's life makes no sense. It's a fascinating I mean, situation for sure. Yeah. yeah. So he joins the Marines. As Jim Garrison brought up, they're giving him Russian language tests, which seems sort of strange. He's discharged from the Marines, supposedly because his mother's sick, stays home three days, and then with a $1,500 ticket from a $203 bank account, he goes to Moscow. What do you, so I, I don't know quite how I want to approach this with you, but <laughs> okay. Well, as, as Garrison might say, ask the question, Steve. Ask the question. Okay. Is he an actual defector to Moscow or is he an intelligence agent? I believe he was an intelligence agent. And I don't, it doesn't have to be as grandiose and nefarious as people sometimes want to say, want to think about when they think of an intelligence agent. There are many people that intelligence agencies groom or you know start to create and start the path that never pay off and never quite finish and for whatever reason. So it is not out of the realm of possibility that Lee Harvey was one of many people, Lee Harvey was one of many people that they were kind of grooming and exploring and wondering, okay, we've got plans, let's start the process. And if an opportunity opens up to use this guy, we'll use this guy. So did they think they, was, they were grooming for the Kennedy assassination? I don't think that's necessarily true. But do I think that they were grooming him for something down the road in the Cold War? 100%. And it's fascinating to me that he's able to get into Russia as easily as he is to do the things that he's doing and then get back into the States quickly as well, which makes me wonder if this guy was a double agent or possibly was an agreement between the security infra, uh, security um, establishments there between Russia and the USA to have him be able to go between both countries so easily without a delay or a long wait as other people might experience, which uh, Laurie Metcalf points out. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. And I think I think one of the things that's important to point out as we're talking about all these, these theories yeah. is it's way easier to tear down something that isn't true than it is to, right. to prove that something is true. Right, right, right. There is definitely something fishy about this story. Oh, yeah. It it just doesn't – it doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. And what makes it make more sense is that on some – as you say, on some level, he's an intelligence agent. Yeah. Whether he's an important – you know, I don't think he's James Bond. 
You know, I think he's one of those guys that James Bond might meet somewhere to get a little piece of information. That's You know what I mean? Like he's a low level dude that ends up in Russia and he gets set up, you know, at this radio factory on a Mm -hmm. sweet deal, making much more money in a much better situation than most people in Russia are getting at that time. Um, There's there's this rumor that they bring up about the U-2 plane. Yeah. Which is because this is right when the U-2 plane was shot down, which famously it's our spy planes that were flying over Russia. And what we hear, and again, this is from this film, is that... Powers hinted that Oswald could have given the Russians enough data to hit it. And the film Bridge of Spies is about this plane being shot down and the getting that pilot back. So if if you guys haven't seen Bridge of Spies, which is a Spielberg movie, that's what that all... Tom Hanks' mission is to get the pilot back who was shot down from this uh, uh, bombing run or so the spy run that was going on there. So, yeah. And again, this is just for screenwriters out there, always important, even in particularly in expositional scenes like this to create conflict. And what, and one of the conflicts is maybe Oswald was a part of that. It gets weirder. You are an assistant DA. Remember, just stick to what you can prove in court. You want facts? Please. And I love the indignation in Laurie Metcalf's performance when she's, uh, laying out all these facts and what you brought up is a really good point Steve I'll make sure we stress on this Michael Rooker is the one that says now come on now what are you proving yeah. what are you saying you know and uh and and Garrison says okay yeah Laurie stay on or Laurie Metcalf's character stay on track stay on track so clearly there is this this idea flying off the handle list there but you know we're trying to just stick with the facts that we can prove Susie, don't from 1945 to 59 how does he get back to the states that's the point as crazy as him going to Russia is what happens when he comes back from Russia is even crazier. Yeah, which is that he he doesn't he just goes back to life. Yeah, like it's no big deal. We're in the middle of the Cold War. Yeah, I mean McCarthy isn't around at this point in sixty two or sixty three, right. but like it's still the Red Scare. Like yeah, there's yeah. still blacklists. There's still Hollywood writers that aren't working because they were had just an accusation of communism. This dude defected to Russia. Yeah, <laughs> like. It's just absolutely nuts. And then he ends up working in photographic jobs where there's security things going on. He ends up interacting with all these different people, including this guy, George DeMortenschild, who probably is, is, I think is confirmed was a CIA operative and that, that alone. And it's like, why this older wealthy guy is hanging out with this young nobody doesn't make any sense either. Right. Right. And we never know what Lee Harvey Oswald's point of view on all of this is did he want to be groomed did he want to be part of the intelligence agency or or, or, um intelligence operations did he want to be all of this we never really hear from him it's always from everyone else who is around him or using him or working with him but it is never from his point of view fully in the film which i think is is a fascinating thing as you watch all of this and we also in this time meet marina which is oswald's wife who he met in russia also a very strange, the whole thing is just a strange relationship and not understandable, but we do see that it looks like it is abusive and difficult and complicated. Marina fights often with Lee about many things. You must understand His secrecy, their lack of money. She says that Lee is not sexually adequate. And, and we also, because again, we're jumping forward and backwards. And one of the things we see is we also see Marina interviewed both right after the assassination and then several months later after, and according to the film, she's been sort of groomed by the Warren Commission to say what it is they want her to say. I have too much facts and facts tell me that Lee shot 
Kennedy. And again, as 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 you, it's Bill who keeps going like, "I'm lost, boss. What are we saying here?" And this is when Garrison answers the question. We're saying that when Oswald went to Russia, he was not a real defector. That he was an intelligence agent on some kind of mission for our government and remained one till the day he died. That's what we're saying. Therefore, because Oswald pulled the trigger, the intelligence community murdered their own commander-in-chief. I call you one better, Bill. Maybe Oswald didn't even pull the trigger. Nitrate tests indicate he hadn't even fired a rifle on November 22nd. And on top of that, they didn't even bother to see if the rifle had been fired that day. My understanding is that most of the criticisms of the investigation are accurate. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. that, that, that this is true, that they didn't test this stuff. Well, that's why it's confounding. And that's what leads to conspiracy theories when people in power or law enforcement agencies uh, make mistakes. And when they make mistakes that are so overt, it becomes a conspiracy, right? We saw that with OJ, right? Furman can be an absolute racist and could absolutely be right in his investigative yeah. techniques in proving that OJ Simpson killed Nicole Brown Simpson and Mark Goldman. But because he's got these points of views and he's racist, they were able to uh, muddy the waters a little bit and create a bias. And because of some a couple other mistakes they made, yeah, in the investigation of this whole situation, they were able to find, um, uh, you know, um, questions about all of this, you know, that allowed the jury to vote not guilty for him. I never could figure out why this guy orders a traceable weapon to this post office box when he going into any store in Texas, give a phony name and walk out with a rifle, which can never be traced. To frame him, obviously. There's a lot of smoke there. But there's some fire. We're talking about our government here. No, we're talking about a crime, Bill, pure and simple. John, I swear to God, I had forgotten that this is where this next line comes from. I didn't remember because it had become such a cliche. Now, we're through the looking glass here, people. White is black and black is white. (laughs) I love that. It's fantastic. Just maybe Oswald is exactly what he said he was. A patsy. Which is what uh, the Senator Long said to him on the plane. Yeah. So we blame. So all of this leads back to Senator Long for whatever reason. So uh, I think all that's Walter Matthau's fault. That's right. <laughs> so now I would like to talk about filmically what's actually yeah. been going on through this entire scene. So, 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 so in terms of exposition, we've learned all about Oswald and his life and all the strange contradictions and all the problems with the investigation. While that's been going on, of course, we're intercutting with footage from all of these things some of which is real footage uh some of which is faked versions of real footage so like we have uh we have oswald or we have marina doing things that they really did for footage some of it is invented footage so oswald going to talk to the russians when he's defecting and all these things these are things that we don't know really what happened and that stone is speculating so all of that is happening And then the other thing is happening is at the very beginning of the scene, we start to see a thing that we don't understand. And then slowly but surely, we start to understand what it is, which is this photograph. And for people who don't know, there is um, a big part of the conspiracy theory for Lee Harvey Oswald is this photograph of him holding the rifle and the gun that is on his hip. Uh, And there are people that claim that his head was planted onto or edited onto um kind of a you know like adobe photoshop for the 1960s yeah his head was added onto a body who had stood in that position and had a similar body to the rv oswald's and there was uh about there's something about the shading and the lighting that made it look a certain way so 
they had that photograph ready to go for Lee Harvey Oswald to uh, kind of turn people against him immediately and buy the story that he was a lone gunman and he had been planning this and all of this stuff. And so there's a lot of questions. Now, subsequently, in the last few months, uh, an agency has come out, an investigative agency has come out, and they had their experts take a look at this photo and they've cleared the photo and said that it's an authentic photo, but it still remains questionable because, I mean, you can find another authentic, another agency that will say that it's an authentic yeah. photo. So there's no overall 100% truth on the photo, which is fascinating. You know? Well, and, and I love the way it's done filmically, which is when you first see it, you see like a guy and an X-Acto knife and he's cutting something and then you see pieces of the photo and you see them and you don't quite know what it is. And of course, you're not really paying attention to it because yeah. you're paying attention to this very complicated narrative about Oswald. But as this image keeps coming back and they keep doing stuff, you start to go, well, what is this? And then for depending on how much you know about Oswald and know about this photo, at a certain point, you recognize what it is. You're like, oh, it's the famous photo of Oswald for, for some. And some people would recognize that very, very early. Some people maybe later. So this this thing is happening in the background of your brain as the sequence is going through. And then at the very end of the sequence, as we're getting to these lines where Garrison says, Just maybe Oswald is exactly what he said he was, a patsy. At the moment that we hear that word, a patsy, we cut to this photo we've been watching the whole time on the cover of Life magazine. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, Stone, once again, just like in the previous two scenes we were talking about, the editing he do, they do here is just stellar absolutely stellar to build the tension. And like you said, Steve, so smartly point out, we start out on a journey of this film, of this photo being created. And yeah. by the end, we've landed on the photo and it hits at the same time as he's saying he's a patsy, which kind of subconsciously and consciously reaffirms that this has been a conspiracy and that Lee Harvey Oswald is actually not the person who killed president Kennedy. And it's something else that's going, going on here. So really expertly done and to do it almost like Sorkin moving around the table type of thing, yeah. which I thought was a, a real interesting way to shoot that uh, by Oliver Stone as well. Well, and this is the thing that I, I, I I'm never going to be able to express this fully, but mm -hmm. that filmic technique is not just here's this piece of information. And now, you know, the piece of information, right. it's like filmic technique is using all these tools to implant not just an idea, but an emotion deep inside of you yep. in a way it, it, it's not just because if I just told you, Hey, someone doctored that photo, you would have the same information, Yep. you know, but right. because you've watched it in the process and because you've wondered, wait, what's happening with this photo, it's become alive for you in this way. And then when it gets delivered on the cover of life magazine, coinciding in sync with the words Patsy, then, then suddenly it takes on all this weight. And again, and I'll say it again, we, you and I, ha we can't actually ever know whether or not that photo was doctored. We, True. We, we, we have evidence on both sides. Yep. In the world of the movie JFK, that photo was doctored. You know yes. how I know that? Right. Because I saw it doctored. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a great point. Yes. You know, he wants you to believe that there's nobody else going, well, it's not doctored. It's no, yeah. definitely doctored. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I could easily have a scene at a trial where I had two photographic experts and the one gave their expert opinion of why it was doctored and yep. the other gave their expert opinion on why it was not doctored. And that would leave us where you and I are with the truth of like, I can't know, you know, I can't be certain. But that is not what happens in this film. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's go to Dealey Plaza. Let's do it. 
So we've already seen a bunch of shots that were both original archival footage of the actual day of the assassination and recreations. Um, so we've already been seeing them. But in fact, th that's not movies don't get made in the order of things show up in the movie. Movies get made in the order that's most convenient to shoot. So I decided to, to talk about this here because this Dealey Plaza shoot is a ridiculously huge shoot. Yeah. Yeah. It's two weeks. Wow. Uh, which uh, Oliver Stone describes as the hardest two weeks of his life. I bet. First of all, they shot with seven different cameras. Five 35 millimeter cameras, two 16 millimeter cameras. They shot with 14 different film stocks. So that means different kinds of film. So some would be grainier, some black and white, some color, some uh, that are uh, filtered in different ways, that are exposed in different ways, which means that every single one of those cameras, when they are shooting a different stock, uh, has to be lit differently. Right. Because they have different requirements. When they, they did shoot in the actual book depository, the book depository has been turned into a museum. So they yes. had to turn it back into what it looked like at the time, not a museum designed to look like what it was at the time. The I, I don't know if this is Dallas or the state, state of Texas or who this organization was, but they got charged $50,000 to shoot at the book depository. Wow. Which makes sense. This is an incredibly yeah. important historical spot. They had lots of limitations in terms of how many people that could be there, what hours they could shoot. They also had to they had to restore it back to 1963, and then they had to bring it back to 1991. This was all really complicated. This entire shoot at Dealey Plaza cost two million dollars. Oh for this my bullpen. god! Wow, um, and that's two million nineteen ninety one dollars. Yep. Yeah. Um, and 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 so when you think about everything that you see and you see all these different angles and all this different chaos that are used throughout the entire film, all of that had to be figured out and shot at the same time. Wow. Wow. It's nuts. Sometimes the hardest thing you have to go through is the thing that's going to pay off the most for you in a creative endeavor. And so it clearly, all these shots that have been littered, that are going to be littered throughout the movie and were littered up to this point in the film coming out of Dealey Plaza were essential. So the two weeks he took, we're worth it to put this film across the line. You were here. Yes, sir. This is where I was sitting. Shots came from near that wooden fence over there. And I saw a man run from the fence toward those railroad cars. I believe that is an actual witness describing his actual what he saw. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's what we're going to go through. We're going to go through different witnesses, hear what they saw, and then see it. I heard the report, saw the smoke come out six or eight feet above the ground. Right out from under those trees. And of course, we see what they saw. My favorite piece of editing is where they're interviewing um, this woman. I stepped down to the curb and yelled, Hey, Mr. President! I love that he cuts mid-sentence into Hey, Mr. President from the witness describing it to the actual event. And the audio is distorted in this very specific way. Yep. And it just, it's like you're continually being transported from the testimony into the reality and back. Yeah. So when someone says, and shots rang out, well, we hear the shots in the way that the witness is describing. Mary fell to the ground right away. She was yelling, they're shooting, they're shooting, get down. And then we're back with Lou and Jim. That's a good spot, Chief. 
the headshot. The sound design has the sound of the rifle. And as Jim is looking at the position for the headshot, he reacts almost as if he's hearing the actual rifle shot, which we are hearing. It's really so smartly edited to put us in the scene and observing the scene at the same time. And that's what keeps us so uh, um, hooked into this film. Uh, Stone, once If Stone's tactics get inside you and they work on you, you're in for the ride. And in this, these scenes, he switches the tactics that he was using before and puts us inside the actual experience, experiencing things with the characters that we're yes. following. So in a way, we graft our ideas or our perceptions of things on to the people. Now they've come become a part of us as we're watching the movie. So it's really smart how Stone slowly but surely gets you to fully connect with Jim Garrison as the film goes along and feel he is you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now we're with this kind of more elegant woman who is talking about how she was mm-hmm. driving by and the car she saw and the people that she saw and that the FBI showed them photographs and she identified one of the men driving the car near Dealey Plaza as Jack Ruby. Yeah. So I just want to point out human memory is shitty. (laughs) Um, Very true. And we, and what we don't, what's been really proven scientifically that I couldn't go into the details of is every time you remember a thing, you're actually rewriting that memory. Mm-hmm. And so the next time you mem- remember it, you're not remembering the thing you remember. You're remembering the last time you remembered the thing. Right. If that makes any sense. And th- which is why, you know, like her saying, I identified Jack Ruby. I put that real low mm-hmm. on in terms of how much I believe that that's I believe that she believes it. Right. But like right. you saw a person briefly under circumstances that meant nothing. Because there was no Kennedy assassination when you saw this person 10 minutes before the Kennedy assassination. Right. You saw a guy in a truck and he kind of looked like this. And then later on, you see Jack Ruby's face over and over and over again because he's the guy that killed Oswald. And then they say, hey, and you go, oh, my God, that's the guy I saw. Right. Well, maybe it was and maybe it wasn't. You know what I mean? Like we're our memories just and this is also why. I, there's a, a a police firing range uh, right near my house because the police mm-hmm. academy is over in Elysian Park. So I hear gunfire when I'm w- out walking in the park all the time. And sometimes it sounds like it's coming from my right. And sometimes it sounds like it's coming from my left. And I know where that firing range is. But the hills around there make gunshots echo everywhere. So when they say those were echoes or you couldn't be exactly sure of where I actually – a hundred percent believe that. That doesn't mean I'm saying there weren't shots from the grass, right. gra- grassy knoll. There might very well have been, but I am saying that it's v- actually much harder than people think to yeah. pinpoint where a sound comes from. You know, yeah. most investigators. I think I read this. Most investigators believe that like eighty percent of memory testimony has flaws to it. So yeah, that tells you. You know, that's why it's tough to prove stuff sometimes in in these cases. But, and, and things like time, because that comes up a lot too. It's like, it was 30 seconds between this and that. It took me one minute to get, we're terrible at judging how, because oh, I mean, yeah. you know, you've been experiences where time went super, super fast and you've been experienced where time dragged super, super slow. Like how could we judge exactly how much time has passed? That's, yeah. that's where these things really do fall apart for me. But the fact that it seems like there was a lot of chaos in the moments after the assassination and there are people that are running to maybe secret service people and maybe giving testimony and then and then like this one where the this woman is you know talking to the police and they're yelling at her echoes 
we have three bullets and three shots that came from the book depository. That's all we're willing to say. No, sir. I saw a man shooting from over there behind that fence. Now, what are you going to do about that? You got to go out there and get we it. We have that taken care of. You only heard three shots, and you're not to talk about this with anybody. I mean, that's just scary. Yeah. And by the way, this woman that they're doing most of these interviews with, that's describing this whole thing with the cameras and stuff like that. Mm. She was alive during the shooting. Oliver Stone had many, many conversations with her. That's and she awesome. was even on the set for some of this. Yeah. And we also hear again from this elegant woman that her testimony has been altered and that she says her signature has been forged. Right. Yeah. By the way, this casting is a really good casting because, listen, the woman on the grassy knoll or in that area of Dealey Plaza, the blonde woman, like there is a bit of a fangirling type of thing that's going on there where she's like, Mr. President, you know, that kind of thing. And then so that when she's getting hurt by these Secret Service guys, you feel for her because she seems like like a regular person who's maybe in the situation and whatever and is a little lighter in terms of the approach. With this woman who is sitting, what seems to be in her living room, having this conversation yeah. with Garrison, the voice is much more lower. It's much more forthright. It is not playful. It is not fangirling. He's, she's very clear about what happened. So I like that you've got these two different witness type approaches to the statements. But the things that she is saying in that living room are the things that you're supposed to take away from this, um, this scene as having much more weight and resonance than someone, as you said, uh, uh, Steve, with a little bit of the memory-ish situation, you know? You know what's interesting? I hadn't thought about it before, but I think you make a great point. And the the, the contrast between these witnesses mm -hmm. and Willie O'Keefe, right. who goes off on the president, and there's the line, which I didn't bring up, but actually comes from Jim Garrison, of, like, I don't understand why a prostitute is believed to have bad vision, or whatever that line is, yeah. is that Garrison is pointing out, like, why do we give higher-ranking to certain testimony based on who it's from. Right. And it's like, and I think this is playing to that because that elegant woman, because she is so calm, like she, like we, there, there is no feeling like she could be lying. Right. And, and the, Hey, Mr. President woman, because she is so passionate and it, yeah. there's no feeling that she could be lying. This is like really important stuff that's yep. serious to her. You know, Yep. we cut to a club and Lolita Davidovich. <laughs> Again, uh, out of nowhere, uh, another – and Lolita Davidovich was kind of big in the early 90s with Blaze yeah. and a couple other films that she was a part of. So this was kind of like this this uptick in her career around this time. And, and it's interesting because we, we're cutting away from Dealey Plaza and then we're going to mm -hmm. cut back to Dealey Plaza. Um, and, I, and I wonder if Stone's reasoning was like it got pretty intense over there. Let's kind of change things up a bit before we go back. Um, to fill in a little bit more of a detail, you know, I, I, I just, well, I have no idea. I just wonder kind of what the reasoning was. Um, and she, I mean, this is the Susan Alexander scene from, Oh, Pain, totally. When he goes back to see her the second time. Yeah. I never thought about it, but of, it's totally, it's, it's like what you said about the, the scene in Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. It, yeah. I totally feel the connection between those two things. Well, I used to go over there a lot to see Jack and especially my friend Jada who danced there. It was a real swinging spot in town. <laughs> Everybody came. Businessmen, politicians from Austin, LBJ's friends. And she's talking about the life at Jack Ruby's Club and that there were mobsters there and there were cops there and there was a lot of people there. And of course, Lee Harvey Oswald and David Ferry were there. <clears throat> Lee didn't make much of an impression. He was, um, well, he really wasn't very good looking and, and he didn't look like he had any money. And, and he was in a bad mood, so I, I didn't pay him much mind. Right. 
which is what you want from someone who's an intelligence operative. You don't want to remember him afterwards. And the other person that she describes, what's so interesting is like, if you took the testimony and you said there was a weird looking guy who had these eyebrows kind of looked like a buzzard. Mm. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean it's David Ferry. Right. You know, this is in Dallas, Texas. It's not in New Orleans. We never mentioned David. She doesn't mention David Ferry. And yet Oliver Stone fills in that blank because there's Joe Pesci. So it was David Ferry. Right. You know, I may not remember a name, but I always remember a face. And then a couple of weeks later when I saw him on the television, I screamed, my God, that's him. That's Jack's friend. What do you think? I know you, this is an impossible question to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Okay. What do you think the odds are that Jack Ruby knew Oswald well? I think the odds are that he knew of Oswald, but I don't think that he necessarily knew Oswald well. So that's what I would say the answer to that is. Because I think Ruby was involved in this to a degree as a lower level person involved in this. Uh, and uh, the Lee Harvey Oswald connection, I think, was tenuous at best. Yeah, I, I, because I, it, it, it really changes the reality. The level that mm-hmm. Jack Ruby knew Oswald from zero, they'd never met, they'd never been in the same room together, to, you know, they were in rooms together and stuff, to they worked together as part of the same conspiracies, totally yeah. changes how much the government's involvement is. Yeah, right. Because I feel pretty confident saying that Jack Ruby was connected to the mob. Yeah, 100%. And you and I, based on our conversation about Russia, both feel decently confident, I think, that he's some kind of intelligence, that Oswald was some kind of intelligence agency. Yeah. So the more that Ruby and Oswald knew each other, the more connected the mob and the government are Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in terms of the conspiracy to kill Kennedy. Right. You know, and this is where I, I, I really don't know the answer. Yeah. I like at the end of the scene that he he asks her to testify and she says if they can kill the president of the united states do you think they're gonna think twice about a two-bit showgirl like me i understand the pressure you're under beverly don't think for a minute i don't so he's not gonna force her to testify no and this is smart right because you got to keep your protagonist good and so in this moment, we may water test. In fact, it's it's a really smart thing because he could have built us up to this moment, possibly, um, with how, and I mean Stone, with how we've gone through the film. To this moment, we have Jim Garrison, and he has been our protagonist in the film. We're following along. We're believing these theories. We're going along with, maybe we have a little skepticism, but then another fact comes in or another tidbit comes in and we kind of go, oh, okay, so maybe this is happening. Maybe this is happening. We're getting these two witness statements. And then we get this statement from her and her reaction. And listen, Davidovich does a wonderful job when they ask her to testify. The whole like nodding her head with the smile as if to say, I'd love to as a courtesy, but no fucking way on God's green earth am I doing this, you know? And it's a great respectful uh, shaking of the head. And we, as an audience, might be like, no, you got to testify. And again, as you brought up earlier, Steve, this idea that Garrison said earlier, why is a prostitute's uh, 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 vision uh, somehow more questionable than a working woman's vision or, or law- a female lawyer's vision? It's the difference. And when you see her, she's a showgirl. And what she says is that, is that how, who's going to believe a two-bit showgirl? And this pays off with Garrison reacting in a positive way to her and going, okay, 
basically saying he's not going to make her testify. And we as the audience love him for that. And so yep. it's really smart because we may we caught up and be like, no, get her to testify. But the fact that he doesn't and respects her, we go, oh man, it's a good guy. You know, it's really smart. It's really I, smart. I, I, yeah, I agree. And you know, what just occurred to me is, is what it also does is it constructs the alternate trial. I think in a weird way in your brain, Great in point. the sense that, you know, spoiler alert, Jim Garrison is not going to win this case, <laughs> you know, and, but we, but you can also go, but what if, what if Beverly had testified and what right. if David Ferry had testified and, and what if they were able to make these other things happen that they couldn't make happen? Then maybe Jim Garrison would have won because what it is, is that we, the audience are let into things that the jury on the case don't ever get to know about. Yeah. We are the jury for this movie. Every exactly. time we watch it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Let's cut to black and white footage of an interrogation with Jack Ruby in prison. I think Brian Doyle Murray is fantastic. Oh, yeah. Another great comedic actor who can play drama. Yeah. Although his Ruby has a lot of characterization to it. Um, it is fascinating. And I, I'm sure you're going to point out the tidbit here of who is asking the questions. Well, please, why don't you point out the tidbit? <laughs> well, the, 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 and that he is playing Earl Warren, I think the, mm -hmm. uh, the guy who created the report, obviously in, in the, the actor playing that the actor, quote unquote, the actor playing that is the actual Jim Garrison who was asking yeah. Brian Doyle Murray, these questions. And uh, I remember getting a kick out of that totally. uh, when I saw that in the movie. And it's funny because he is oddly stiff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> With those big but it's, it, I, yeah. I feel like it's oddly stiff in a way that works. Yeah. Um, it also, Jim Garrison was quite ill at this time and, oh, and died. Right. That's right. Maybe six months after. So, um, but basically Ruby is saying, if you request that I go back to Washington with you, that is, if you want to hear further testimony from me, can you do that? Can you take me with you? No, that could not be done. There would be no safe place for you. We're not law enforcement officers. It's, it's a weird thing because it's like, well, if the federal government wanted to protect Jack Ruby, they could do it, you know? <laughs> It's so him saying we can't protect you seems very strange to me. Well, I mean, we just saw in the January 6th commission, there was only so much they could do to compel people to testify. So maybe this commission, same kind of thing. Like we can only go so far and we're not budgeted for being able to pay for extra security to hotel, all this kind of stuff. That's maybe very much a possibility in the whole situation, which is maybe why, uh, there are questions about that report because they didn't have the full latitude to go as far as they wanted to, possibly. Well, or it is it, it is also perfectly consistent with, we already know the government killed JFK. We're not at all interested in finding the real truth. We only want to go through the motions of looking like we're looking for the truth. Now you're on board. Now you're on board. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> See, if I'm eliminated, there won't be any way of knowing any bit of the truth pertaining to my situation. And consequently, a whole new form of government is going to take over this country. Yeah. Do you know if Ruby actually said that specific line? I don't think he said that specifically, but that's, I think Stone has implied that by certain people's remembrances of conversations they had with Ruby. And so he put that in the, uh, in the movie in the way that it does. But it also, um, 
reinforces the point here. And it feels eerily similar, Steve, to what we've been hearing a lot of people in conspiracy theory say nowadays, right? They've installed this government. This is a whole bought and paid for government and they've got their own points of views. Wake up people, you know, that kind of thing. And so you can hear, you can understand how people might connect connect the stuff that's in this movie to what we're seeing now uh, with some of the conspiracies theories that are being said. But looking at the film, this also um, reaffirms what John Candy had said earlier in that scene with Garrison, where he said, you know, the government's going to sit on ahead and go cock-a-doodle-doo. Uh, and also, if I give you the name of that big cheese you're looking for, well, it's by, goodbye to me. So it keeps ratcheting up the life and death stakes of this conspiracy, which gives you that unsettling, uh, stressed out, tense feeling that Garrison's life could be in danger. The protagonist of this film we've grown to care about could be in danger as he keeps pursuing this, you know? So we've sensed the danger here by having uh, Ruby say the things that he's saying. And by the way, in real life, Jack Ruby was a guy who was a little bit like David Ferry. He overblew his status in the, underworld and as a club owner he liked drawing attention to himself he liked overstating his importance in that underworld so you know you take with you take with a grain of salt some of the stuff he said or has said in the past like because he claimed he killed lee harvey oswald for jackie kennedy so you know i mean a there are so many grain of salts you have to take with this movie that your blood (laughs) pressure will go up very that's the that's the first thing but the second thing is the threat is obviously real because Oliver Stone established yes. these people who are witnesses have already gotten killed. Yes. Good point. Absolutely. And, and the end of the scene is that Ruby says, and I know that I won't live to see you some other time because I want to tell the truth. And then I want to leave this world. And we cut to the dead body of Jack Ruby being taken out of the prison. Yep. So, now I think Jack Ruby died of cancer. I think yeah. that's yeah, yeah, yeah. But but Stone doesn't tell you that, does he? Stone just well, lets you feel like he might have been killed in prison. Yeah. And sure he died of Yeah, he died of cancer, John. Sure he did. <laughs> you don't think like the God CIA could fake cancer? I mean, come on. Just like Jack Levins' guy banister suddenly died. Well, that's how a heart attack works. It comes out <laughs> of nowhere and you suddenly die. Well, and it's like, you know, he didn't look like the healthiest of dudes. Well, that, right. it's funny. I remember in the 90s, I got the uh, Vertigo comics put out their big book of conspiracy theories. Yeah. And I remember it going through, here are all the witnesses to the Kennedy assassination that died under weird circumstances. Mm-hmm. And when you yeah. read them all back to back sure. at once, it'll freak you out. Right. You know, and, and it's like, you know. You can go probably could go through and go, okay, this one sounded weird, but it actually, you know, this person yeah. was a, a four pack a day smoker who died of lung cancer. It's not that weird, you know, but but when you look them all over next to each other, it gets scary. The Bruder film establishes three shots in 5.6 seconds. I agree with Jim Garrison. This fact is the thing that most leads to all the conspiracy theories 5.6 yeah. seconds. If you didn't have that piece of information, you could spin a lot of bullshit about what did or didn't happen. But yeah. this locks it into if there are only three shots and it's 5.6 seconds, then that makes a whole bunch of other stuff have happen. Yeah. Uh, and first we see Lou with the same rifle, try the shots with Jim timing him and it takes 6.7 seconds. And that's without really aiming. Key is the second and third shots came almost right on top of each other. It takes a minimum 
2.3 seconds to recycle this thing. And this is when we also find out that none of the other sharpshooters could, the FBI sharpshooters could match Oswald's shooting. In the time frame that they'd right. laid out. Although the commission extended the time frame, I think to like nine seconds to make it seem mm. like it was possible. Yeah. What, one thing I will say, and this is uh, just stupid, but it comes from going to film school, is that little 16 millimeter camera that Zapruder was using, those things do not actually run at a constant rate. Mm. Um, so, because what they're doing is they're going, well, we can watch this film and therefore this is how many seconds it is. But it could be some of them run a little bit faster, a little bit yeah. slow, those cheap cameras. So it could be a little bit longer, a little shorter. Maybe that's how they got to nine seconds. I don't know. I mean, this is the whole essence of the case to me. The guy couldn't do the shoot. Nobody could. This is one of the most persuasive pieces of evidence yes. for a conspiracy to me. It, it's the number one piece for me. It really is. Because as someone who was in the military, as someone who was trained to shoot a rifle, that is, and, and, and I knew many people who were great at shooting, and uh, I was never that great at shooting, but I would watch people who were the great. I would get lessons from people who were great. It is a very difficult thing to pull off. Three shots like that in that, in the, when you look at the design and the blueprint of Dealey Plaza and what was going on in the tree that you talked about, all of that, it's an incredible level of effort. And there is no documentation of Lee Harvey Oswald being this incredible rifleman and shooter in all of this for consistently and winning these awards for marksmanship. It's not out there. So to me, I look at this situation, I go, come on, come the fuck on. Like I buy... I, you know, the James Garfield thing, right? When he's right up on him or whatever. He's shooting yeah. Him at a, yeah, that is he's close. That makes sense. But a rifle, like why take the chance from so far away with a rifle that can be absolutely traced back to you if you've got these connections in the intelligence agencies? It makes no fucking sense. And no, I don't buy that he's just some lone idiot who had an argument or was mad at Kennedy, lost his mind and shot him from a, from a book depository. His job, shot him from his job. It just doesn't make sense. And so, yeah, I, this is where I, I, you'll never talk me out of it because this is the thing that I think 100% is, uh, is well, the truth. You know? Well, I mean, what are the odds the president's is going to plan a uh, motorcade driving by your work? Right. You know, like you had to get the job like right. and and then you had to. And, and the thing, too, again, I'm not a gun guy at all. I have fired a rifle a few times, yeah. but it's a it's a heavy bolt action rifle. That means every time you pull that bolt action to ro to load the next round, you have to re aim after. Yes. You can't, there's no way you can keep the barrel straight while you're pulling the, the bolt because you saw how heavy it is in the movie. That's a really, really impressive piece of shooting to re-aim, particularly because the third shot's a good one. Now, of course, people get lucky. There's a certain random element. I'm not saying that it's Im totally impossible that Oswald could have made this shot, but it seems exceptionally... Uh, there's so many things that have to go perfectly for that to happen. Let me ask you something, Lou. Why not just shoot Kennedy coming up Houston? There's plenty of time. And then again, we could just ask the question, right? but it's way more dramatic to have Kevin Costner take the rifle and aim at a convertible coming towards them. That's way, that just, you feel something much bigger going on than just having the conversation. I know, I keep asking myself the same thing. It's a funnel shot. Even if you miss him for the first shot, if it accelerates, you still got him for the second shot. Again, you, you have to re-aim after you 
put the next round in. Well, someone who's moving horizontally in front of you, that's a much bigger re-aim than someone who's moving towards you on a street coming towards you. And there's a panic that yeah. would naturally ensue as they're moving farther away from you. you know? And their conclusion, and again, this is the difference between tearing down the evidence for one set of fact and building up the one for the other. Now, the only reason for waiting to get him on Elm is you got him in a triangulated crossfire. Right? You put a team there on that defense for a frontal shot, flat, low trajectory, put a third team down here in this building here on a low floor. Kennedy gets the kill zone there. It's a turkey shoot. And then we get into Lou's description of how they would do this. It takes skill to kill with a rifle, team. You got to figure that's why there's been no execution of a chief executive with one in 200 years. So first of all, I didn't check whether or not that's true. Second of all, I, this idea that it takes skill to kill with a rifle. I mean, yes, if you're right up next to someone, it doesn't take that much skill to use a revolver or something. Right. But rifles are designed to shoot accurately at long distances. So to me, it's that the statement of it takes skill to shoot with a skill to shoot with a rifle, chief. I I I kind of have a problem with that. You do? Tell, uh, well, I'm I not saying it's not rifles. And I will tell you, and I'm not counting your po point at all, Steve. I'll tell you just my own experience. I was a terrible shot. It took me yeah. a day and a half to qualify just at the lowest level when I was in the military as a 19-year-old. Um, I had a hard time shooting. And these were targets that were anywhere from 400 yards away to like 25 yards in yeah. front of me or 25 feet in front of me. Very difficult to do. There's a lot involved with the breathing, with the putting where the where the um, the back of the rifle goes in the in your shoulder, and just aiming, making sure the sweat isn't in your eye. All there's so much that goes, and you're and you're closing the right eye, and that your left eye or your right eye, whatever you're using to aim, is is like good 2020 or really good vision. There's a lot that goes into it. Plus the plus the the when you shoot the rifle, the back blast slamming into your Shoulder, you've got to be able to negotiate that to get rid off another shot. So it does take skill to be great with a rifle. Yeah. It doesn't take skill to shoot the rifle and be close, but to be accurate, it does take a lot of skill. Let me restate what I was saying, because <laughs> sure. I agree with everything you said. And, 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 and of course, I'm not saying my point is not that using a rifle doesn't take skill. That That's not my point. Right. My point is, is that there are all sorts of people who are competent with rifles who train to shoot with rifles. Right. The, uh, what, the way that Lou is saying this is he's saying like, Hey, this is a really crazy thing that someone would try to kill someone with a rifle. And I'm like, look, rifles are built to kill from a distance. That sure. is their purpose. So it, it's not, it, to me, it's not quite as bizarre as the way Lou is stating it. Mm -hmm. I think that, that that's, that's what I would say. That's fair. Then he goes into sort of his, this is exactly how this would work. And we're and and again, it's the intercutting that makes it all so thrilling. Because mm -hmm. as he's describing what would happen, we're intercutting with the actual footage. We're intercutting with fuzzy images from the Zabruder film, yeah. and we're watching Kevin Costner aim. And as this is all happening, yeah. The next question is key to the difference between a conspiracy theory mm -hmm. and a conspiracy theory run by the government. Who do you think changed the parade, right, Lou? Yeah. Because if the parade route was changed on purpose to allow this assassination to take place, then the government did it. Mm -hmm. If the whoever killed the president adapted to a parade route that they maybe found out about slightly in advance, 
that's not the government doing it necessarily. That's one of the key differences. Yeah, I agree. And and look, man, how am I going to say this correctly? Um, I absolutely respect um, law enforcement and police agencies, but they are not without their bad apples. And as we've discovered, and as we've known, or some people have known for many, many generations, how corrupt those bad apples can be. And as we're hearing nowadays, how certain members of police are members of white supremacist organizations or domestic terrorist organizations, um, it is not beyond the realm of possibility to believe that at just at a local level, certain people wanted to have certain things happen and they choreographed and they worked with certain members of law enforcement who maybe didn't like Jack Kennedy to make it happen. Okay. And it's not out of their own possibility that the mob might have paid off who have always had police in their back pocket that, or, or certain police members in their back pocket. It's not out of their own possibility to believe that if the mob was the instigator of all this, that they paid off certain people so that the route went a certain way because they had set up the triangulation of fire. And so that Kennedy would be killed in this way because it is because it was not supposed to go by Dealey Plaza, the original, the original route. So the fact that it got changed on the morning of, by the way, it wasn't changed days ahead of time, the morning of. So that's something that has to be factored into all of this, which is why people who just so, so steadfastly and stubbornly believe in the lone gunman theory, I just don't understand. I just don't, I don't understand how you could be so clear that that is what happened here because there are a lot of, a lot of facts that are a little questionable when you look at this stuff. It, it really is an overwhelming level of stuff where you go, that feels weird. Yes, that, that was yes. a, and none of them on their own are evidence of much yes. at all, but all of them together. And this is where we go in the director's cut is that the mayor of Dallas at the time was loyal Cabell, who is the brother of a general who was fired by Kennedy after right. the Bay of pigs. Right. And it's like, does that mean that Loyal Cabell conspired with his brother to kill Kennedy in revenge for the firing of his brother and therefore change the route? Like, no, it doesn't mean that. But yeah. it makes you go, ah, oh, that's weird. Yeah. We leave Dealey Plaza and we cut to, you know, a New Orleans band and Bill is talking to this guy who reveals. And I love I love Michael Worker's reaction when it finally gets revealed who Clay Bertrand is, which is that Clay Bertrand is Clay Shaw. Clay Bertrand is Clay Shaw. Gary used to run the International Trademark. Yeah. What's the big mystery? Everybody down here knows the guy. We're back at the offices where Susie is now giving us a report. And this is where, again, all it's about the multiple Oswalds. That mm -hmm. Oswald is just popping up in the summer of 63 all over the place, Dallas and New Orleans very publicly and some of this is in the director's cut at, um where we see more of these things that he's doing but what we're hearing about is that lee harvey oswald showed up to a car dealership or was buying guns or was doing this and yelling about hating kennedy and when we cut and we see the back of lee harvey oswald multiple times and when we cut to his face we see that it is not gary oldman but it is frank whaley yeah frank whaley yeah <laughs> he's perfect casting because there's something about his face that you can't not recognize, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. Of course he was in the doors, uh, playing Robbie yeah. Krieger. Yeah. Um, and there's this whole thing and I don't even understand what the hell, ha I mean, I have no understanding of something about Oswald going to Mexico. 
And whether or not it was Oswald or a fake Oswald and the FBI may or may not have taken pictures of someone that may or may not have been Oswald and he may or may not have been heading to Cuba. And I don't know, maybe, you know, understand this more than me, John, but this whole the whole Mexico City thing has always confused me. Yeah, it's a little weird. And I always for a film that where he made a a director's cut where he added more footage, I always felt it was weird he didn't take this out because it solves nothing. This gives you nothing but yet another instance where Oswald was someplace else or was able to travel to another country easily and do whatever he needed to do there. So, uh, yeah, it's a weird scene for sure. Here's one of the weird things. So so one of the ideas is that they want that Oswald needs to be painted as a communist. Right. And in particular, a pro-Castro communist in order to explain why he kills the president. But one of the reasons for uh, why there was a cover-up, depending on who you read, if you believe there is a cover-up, is that the cover-up existed to prevent us from going to war with Cuba or from going to war with the Soviet Union. Because the worry was, if we discovered that communists had killed our president, well, that obviously is an act yeah. of war. Yeah. But these things are in contradiction. If you want to use the the fear of war with communists for your cover-up, why have you set up your patsy to be a communist? Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, but, but uh, again, the idea of an American communist is somehow more, especially a white Southern American communist, killing the president is a little more palatable than, you know, Soviet Russian communists coming over here, infiltrating our country and killing our president, right? Like people look at 9-11 and those terrorists and what they did, and there is an anger and abhorrence. And people are like, let's round up every Middle Eastern person and question them and put them in camps. A lot of people were super crazy about it, right? But when McVeigh did this, they weren't like, let's round up all the white guys in the South and put them in jail and prison and camp and ask them questions. No, somehow when it's domestic, we don't necessarily feel the foreign influence or the desire to go after the foreign influence as strongly as we do when it's someone who's coming over from another country and doing the stuff in our country. It's an interesting thing because I, I, me personally, I'm weird like this. I think they're the same, but other people don't necessarily are in mass. Americans don't necessarily feel the same way. Or I think in any country don't necessarily feel the same way when it's one of their own. Well, exactly. It's like me going like, okay, a white guy just did this thing, round up all the white guys, including me is a weird, (laughs) (laughs) that system doesn't work that well. You know, obviously, I can't be trusted. <laughs> the the I think I wait think wait that, wait not mean me not not me. I mean the the bad ones get the bad ones. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, in general, any time that you look at an act done by an individual or members of a group and therefore condemn the whole group, that doesn't that doesn't work for me. Like that's not how people are. But but the the instinct that people will do that, and we're seeing it yeah. play out right now, yeah. is of, of associating all members of a group with the with individuals within that group. Is mm-hmm. that's a way that's how humans operate. God damn, they put Oswald together from day one, like some dummy corporation the Bahamas. You just move them around a board. Anybody want to quit? <laughs> and everybody raises their hands. <laughs> He says, all right, dumb questions. Put your hands down. Put your hands down. And at this moment, Bill walks in and says, I found Clay Bertrand. Grab your socks and hose and pull. Clay Bertrand is Clay Shaw. 
And the reaction that they have is just like the reaction that Bill had. This is an upstanding citizen. Oh, honey, I hate for him to get dragged into this. He's done so much for the city with all that restoration in the quarter. Remember we saw him at the Bally High fundraiser? He seems like such a nice man. Honey, it'll be off the record. I'll bring him in on a Sunday. Then we have news reports that are all about Vietnam. And again, this is the framing of Oliver Stone about what is important about this. And this is the Sunday he's supposed to bring it in, which Jim Garrison has totally forgotten was Easter Sunday, and he was supposed to do family stuff. You're missing most of your life, and you don't even know it, honey. The kids are missing out, too. You're not the only Look, one I'll making sacrifices. I'll rush, and I'll be there by two, I promise. Do you have any belief whatsoever that Jim Garrison is going to make this, this no. Easter lunch? No. Well, I mean, do you ever believe any addict when they tell you they're going to be somewhere? You just never know by a certain time, you know, Fair. If, if, especially if they're about to go and indulge in the thing that they're addicted to. No, not really. So and you know what? To indulge this. Yeah. I'm so glad you made, made that metaphor because actually that is a perfect metaphor for the conspiracy, for the going down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole. It is oh, an addiction. It's a hundred percent addiction. Yeah. Yes. And, and just like addiction Certain people are chemically inclined to believe certain things because of how they're built either mentally or emotionally. And so they can slide into this a little bit easier than other people who can pull themselves out. You know, I mean, if you read anything with cults, and I've become such a fucking watcher of all these cult documentaries, these books make that very clear that being a part of a cult is essentially an addiction and you have to slowly mm. move them out of it like you would go to rehab. You have to go to no. rehab for cults, you know? And so it is difficult, difficult to do because people want to want to get out of the cult, want to want to be better in order to get out of it, you know? Uh, let's uh, actually, for the first time for real, meet yeah. Clay Shaw. Let's do it. Now, it, it's so weird because we've been seeing Tommy Lee Jones since the beginning of the movie, and we've heard some lines from him, little bits of dialogue, but all of those are in other people's flashbacks. Like, so, so this is the first time we're actually really meeting him. Tommy Lee Jones will be nominated for best supporting actor for this performance. What do you think of him in this film? I love him in this film. It is such an unusual performance for Tommy Lee Jones because of what, and we just did Tommy Lee Jones. Exactly. In Black, right. The different, this is again, this is yet another, because the nineties are Tommy Lee Jones's decade. This is where he establishes himself forever. And yes, of course he's still consistently working, still does those smaller movies, whatever. Um, but this, these years in the nineties are where you get prime Tommy Lee Jones, who shows you how good of an actor is because he seamlessly appears in all these different films, different genres, and is very believable in all of them. And this portrayal is so interesting from the white curly hair to the way he commands every moment, the way he's in control, even the way he kind of affects his face a little bit. That he's kind of he's a sympathetic guy. You could understand why he'd be an upstanding member of the community because people seem to like him immediately. He's got a very easy presence. All of it is there to to see with him, and I think it's such a smart portrayal. And he's, I mean, playing the southern, um, you know, homosexual aristocrat almost. It's it's a interesting portrayal, and it never slides into caricature, which I think is always the danger with doing something like this. I, so I have th several thoughts. The, the first is, I think it's interesting. I think the th maybe there's another movie that Tom Lee Jones is in that we've done, but the ones that I remember, obviously, are Men in Black, which we just did, and No Country for Old Men. Oh, yeah. And if you c compare these those three performances, 
that's a hell of a range, a hell of a statement about an actor is those three performances. Right. I don't know in this movie filled with unbelievable supporting characters that mm -hmm. he's the one I would have said you should nominate this guy for best supporting actor. But it's not that he doesn't deserve it. I think he totally, he's great, but it's like, well, Donald Sutherland's great and Walter Matthau's great and Jack Lemmon's great. And I this, think, you know, th this is a hell of a, a movie for best supporting John Candy, you know? Yeah. Um, Sutherland but, is the choice in my opinion, but yeah. yeah. Sutherland comes in where we get there, man. Yeah. That is a, that is a lot. But what I will say, what's really interesting to me is today when we are fortunately far more open about people's sexual preference mm. and how their behavior. Right. Uh, what's interesting to me is there was this time where you could be what is kind of obviously gay looking at it from mm. our perspective, but be folded into mainstream society where most people didn't understand that you were gay. Yeah. And like the biggest one that I always, I know I brought up before, but I always love is that Liberace received far more marriage proposals than Elvis Presley. <laughs> Because yeah. people didn't understand that he was gay. Right. Which, looking at it now, it's like, come on, it's Liberace. <laughs> Is that right. you could be the most elegant, sought-after man about town who had the best taste in music, the best taste in food, in wine, who was connected, was very European and had incredible style, and that would be admired for that without actually people seeing some of those traits is the term that maybe a decade ago we would call metrosexual, <laughs> you know, it's like, but that's what he is. And he is so smooth and so elegant. And I love that uh, Garrison says, I'm sorry, Mr. Shaw, to interrupt this holiday, but I feel this is a conversation we might better have out of the everyday bustle in this office. I'm not sure I understand. Well, in an investigation we're conducting, your name has come up a number of times. I wouldn't imagine where. You know, he's just, the smoothness is great. Yeah. Yeah. And he mentions some of these names. Shaw denies all of them. And then he mentions Willie O'Keefe. And I love small reactions from actors. Yeah, you man. could see just the tiniest flick from Tommy Lee Jones as he denies that he knows him that is just slightly different from the other ones. Yeah. And then what we do is we intercut the story that Willie O'Keefe told of coming to have dinner with Clay Bertrand in his very elegant dining room with his huge Chippendale table and his butler who is and everything gussied out to the nines. And as he describes it and we see it, Clay Shaw denies it step by step by step. Does that bring back memories of Willie O'Keefe? Not at all. On the other hand, I do have a lovely Chippendale dining table, and I often have a friend over sitting at one end while I sit at the other. It's precisely the point of a long dining table. The splendor of the meal adds to the enjoyment of it. <laughs> I think having uh, a meal at opposite ends of a long rectangular table is stupid. <laughs> but that's just, but that's why I'm not as elegant as Clay Bertrand. What will the people think? What I tell them to think. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Where's all this leading to, Mr. Garrison? After dinner, you paid him to have sex. That is absolute nonsense. The quarter is filled with vivid imaginations, my dear Mr. Garrison. Well, you, t you talk about micro moments. He reacts to that when Garrison asks him. He stops mm. and he stares at him. And then he slowly responds to him in what he says, right? The, um, so clearly it's a, you know, this is a, you know, when you're acting in a great scene, it's a joust. It's a battle. Have wills and 
you're seeing the battle of wills. And Steve, you so correctly point out the micro movements of Tommy Lee Jones's face. It is Garrison's job here to um, uh, use his hammer to knock some cracks into this uh, concrete exterior that Clay Shaw has. And the first crack he gets is when he says so abruptly and rudely, and then you paid to have sex with him, just essentially mm. calling him a homosexual. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. his reaction to that is strong because, as you said, in certain quarters, although it was accepted maybe less back then, or sorry, accepted more back then, uh, or now rather, back then it wasn't as accepted. And so he naturally you're going to immediately revert back to the whole like, what, uh, what rumors is crazy, blah, 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 not me. And so you see that, but he's he's showing his hand a little bit to show him that he's not playing around with him. So it's a great um, change of power as the scene goes on, switching of power between the guys throughout this battle uh, that I think is awesome. And then we bring up uh, it, that David Ferry came to mm-hmm. these events and we do exactly the same thing we've now done many times, which is that in the interview, Clay Shaw will deny that any of this ever happened. And as he denies it, we are seeing images of what happened. And I, this is all just, it gets into some weird stuff. <laughs> Let's just say in terms of what was going on, what it gets into weird stuff in terms of what Oliver Stone yeah. is projecting was going on in in Clay Shaw's house with David Ferry and Willie O'Keefe. And we're not kink shaming to say it's weird. If you're into this stuff, yeah, knock yourself out. But you know, I am very glad you made that correction. I could couldn't care less if people want to do this stuff. Yeah. Uh, but I will say that the way that it's handled for the film is not to make you go. This is perfectly normal stuff. Right. It's to make, well, at least for the most of the mainstream, it's to make them feel uncomfortable or that this is strange or that he's debaucherous in some way. So, oh, he's willing to cross lines, uh, so to speak, you know, and it's weird to see David Ferry, who we had seen essentially being bitch slapped and having his, uh, uh, his penis punched by Clay Shaw, see him be kind of like the guy in charge of these sessions uh, as we're seeing the flashbacks of him telling Clay Shaw, you know, Clay Shaw, who's all in the gold, like, you, you, uh, I'm the man, I'm the man. And you're seeing Willie O'Keefe getting turned on by it. So, yeah, it's interesting uh, scenes. I, I want to, I'm trying to think of how to say this, but <laughs> I'm just going to say it in the way, in the way that I'm going to say it. I think that in 1991, with our perceptions, like, there was no, the, the, the phrase, which I know now of don't shame someone's kink, you know, like that, yeah, that right. is a, uh, that is a, a common thing today. That yes. was in 1991. No. And I think that Oliver Stone is leveraging yeah. the distaste one his, his average American audience might have for what's going on in this scene in order to condemn Clay Shaw and David Ferry as bad people. It's a great point, Steve. It's a dangerously homophobic situation here because there are certainly straight people who would have these kinds of role-playing sexual situations with multiple partners and it may not be seen as debaucherous as you might see in 1991 for the mainstream for a homosexual lifestyle so yeah that's a very good point i mean you know it's like things that people have argued about science of the lambs and the portrayal of buffalo bill oh yeah you know that we and with that movies that's is that 91 it might be the same year yeah yeah it's same year so like that idea of like oh this thing that is outside the mainstream sexually must mean that people are also outside the mainstream in more nefarious ways, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But as we're playing this out, we're kind of interrogating Shaw about fairy. And then the subject of Oswald is coming up. 
You really have me consorting with a sordid cast of characters, Please don't you? Please answer the question. Of course not. Such a pity, that assassination. In fact, I admired President Kennedy, a man of true panache, wife of impeccable taste. I'm hungry. Well, why don't we just go ahead and order without you, Daddy? I don't think you'll mind. We intercut with the restaurant, and of course, just as you predicted, John, the dad has not shown up, and they yeah. are getting upset. Let me, let me ask you those, because I know we're trying to, to, to wrap up here in a, in a second, but why do you have a scene like this? Why would you put scenes here that show him abusing or not abusing necessarily, but disappointing his family. Is this to show you that Garrison is too obsessed with this? Is this to be fair so that the audience sees that there are some negative aspects to Jim Garrison's um, approach to this? So it's fa- so it's more of a fairer point of view or fairer perception, sorry, fairer portrayal of, of Garrison? Or is this in some way meant to make him seem heroic because he's willing to sacrifice everything to go and get the answers here. I definitely don't think it's the latter. I think, I mean, I think this is a fairly common, you know, you have the cop that's working long hours to bring in the bad guy and ignoring his young wife when they're baby, you have the, you have the doctor who always is going, you know, or the scientist who's trying to solve the big problem or the, you know, my, my favorite scenes early in the West wing is Leo and his wife saying, you know, he's saying, this job I'm doing is important. And she says, it's not more important than your marriage. And he says, yes, right now, what I'm doing is more important than my marriage. One of my favorite scenes of all time. So I think it's a common kind of technique of the ba- of the work-home-life balance. I think in this case, I don't love all of it, mostly because I'm really involved in the mystery more yeah. than I'm involved in his family. Yeah. But I do love the payoff is right. that they have the big fight Right. And then at the moment where Jim gets really, you know, after the RFK assassination, yeah, yeah, yeah. where he's really scared for his family and people are, that's when it's paying off for me. Right. Good. You know, so sometimes, so, so even though I don't love the thread, I do feel like sometimes you need to build some building blocks in order to get the payoff to have it. If we had no relation, if we never met his family and didn't have any relationship to them, then when things start to get scary and when that, then it wouldn't matter. You know, right. that's kind of my feeling. Uh, so we're back in uh, with Shaw. Now they're asking stuff about businesses and all this, uh, you know, which I don't think is that important. I don't really understand that well. Just that he might have ties to the CIA is what yeah. essentially trying to establish here. Yeah. And I do certainly like. You have been a contract agent for the Central Intelligence Agency. And if I were, Mr. Garrison, do you believe I would be here today talking to somebody like you? People like you don't have to, I guess. May I go? People like you, they just walk between the raindrops. I think Clay Shaw has pissed Jim Garrison off. Yes, exactly. It's the it's the back and forth throughout this whole scene, the switching of status and who's in control, who's not in control, who has power, who doesn't have power. Garrison takes it as an insult that Shaw has, as he said, danced in between the raindrops for him. And I think a little bit put Garrison back on his heels. You know, and this is, you're going to start, it's easy to go after the nine judges and all that kind of stuff, but going after someone like Clay Shaw, who's got the kind of protection he has and the kind of experience he has is leveling up and Garrison not getting the best of him in the first exchange makes a lot of sense. Regardless of what you may think of me, Mr. Garrison, I am a patriot first and foremost. I've spent half my life in the United States military serving and defending this great country, Mr. Shaw, and you're the first person I ever met who considered an act of patriotism to murder his own president. Now, just a minute, sir. You are way out of line. 
Now that's strong. And Bill steps in to try to like go, okay, let's calm this down. And Shaw, still elegant as ever on his way out, says, I wish to extend to each of you and to each of your families my best wishes for a happy Easter. And gives just this great look as he walks out, still very much in control. Yeah. Garrison's response is, One may smile and smile and be a villain. God damn it, we got one of them. Did you see that? That's a Shakespeare line. One may smile and smile and be a villain. Yeah. What did you? What did they see that made him say, we got one of them? Because you saw uh, moments where Shaw was a little unsettled by the questioning and looked like, uh, you know, he was hiding stuff. And I think Garrison saw that. And the way Shaw kind of dismissed him and had the back and forth with him, I think for him, he saw that there is something there. And so for Garrison, in his mind, because the, the, he's a uh, prosecutor, he knows when someone is lying to him and when someone is not lying to him. In his mind, he's got uh, he's got Shaw now because he knows that he's been lying to him throughout that whole interrogation. So here's I'm thinking about this. Mm-hmm. I went, okay, this is a important man in the community, yes. wealthy, well respected, connected in all sorts of ways, who has been brought in on Easter Sunday, mm-hmm. where the district attorney has accused him of having sex with a gay prostitute. Yes. Putting Kennedy entirely aside, Mm -hmm. is it likely that man would say, you're right, I sleep with gay prostitutes? Of course not, no. Yeah. See, so to me, like, and then if then that was connected, oh, and by the way, not only do I believe you're sleeping with gay prostitutes, but I believe you're connected to Lee Harvey Oswald, the man who killed the president. Right. I All of that would be denied, even if there was no connection to Lee Harvey Oswald. And so to me, like, it is, uh, yeah, of course he's lying. Of, of course he would lie. But that in itself is very, very thin evidence. Oh, no. Uh, you know. Right. Again, but like you said earlier, though, we are the jury in this movie. And so- right. Stone is laying his case out for us as the viewers, um, and we'll get he'll he'll get more latitude with us than he would in a court if he was presenting the things the way he was presenting them. And I think the whole point of this uh, approach by Garrison in the context of the movie is to unsettle Shaw, to shake things a little yeah. bit to see what falls out. You know, so I don't think he intended that Shaw would tell the truth to him about it. If it did, great, but it was more about to show the people around new Orleans that he's not fucking around. And I think that's was, I think that was the intention of all of this, you know? And I think at this moment that we, that Jim Garrison has found his lead suspect into the Kennedy assassination. It is as good a time as any to end part two of our exploration of JFK. Well, I hate to have an extra minute, but can I throw a little symbolism in here? Oh, absolutely. Okay. It's happening on Easter Sunday. What happens on Easter Sunday? It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right. What did a lot of people see Kennedy as? A savior, a savior to America, Mm. to changing things. So the fact that he's essentially questioning one of the people that might have uh, crucified their Jesus in Jack Kennedy on Easter Sunday in order to resuscitate Kennedy, bring him back to life in a way to avenge his death. I think there's a lot of symbolism about having this on Easter Sunday. So just wanted to throw that out there. Um, and maybe, maybe Stone would think I'm crazy if I said that, but I just don't think it's an accident that he, that he staged this on Easter Sunday. I don't know what Stone would think, but dude, that's one of my favorite pieces of symbolism. It never occurred to me, but the idea that after 
And it's been, and I think it's been three years since the Kennedy assassination, yeah. and it was three days from the crucifixion to the right. resurrection, yep. and that after that, that our way of turning the corner is this happens on Easter Sunday, I think is amazing. I love this piece of symbolism, and I would love to hear what our audience thought of this piece of yeah. symbolism and really of everything we've discussed in part two of our exploration of JFK. And you can visit us on Facebook by doing a search for The Cinephiles. It's Cine underscore files on Twitter. It's The Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. Of course, if you haven't subscribed to the show, that really does help. If you're into YouTube, then subscribing on YouTube is great, and you can leave your comments. If you're an Apple person and use Apple Podcasts, then subscribe there. And while you're there, please leave a review. But you could subscribe at any of the podcast platforms where all of those places. You can show, support the show at patreon.com slash the cinephiles, where right now you could be listening to our latest short, which is an FMK. And if you don't know what an FMK is, well, then you should definitely sign up for just $5 a month and get ad-free versions of the show. And you could hear whatever is going to happen next, because John and I are about to record it. And if you want to buy or stream JFK along with every other film we've ever reviewed, you could do it at cinephiles.net. And if you want to reach me, it's SR Morris on Twitter and SR Morris one on Instagram. And there is a rumor, a strong rumor, that Enterprise Incidents might be returning for a brief new stint in the very near future. So keep an eye out for that. John, how would people find you? Oh, you can always find me at The Roca Says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, The Outlaw Nation on Twitch, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca Says, which has all my trailer reactions, movie reviews, shows that I do, like the Hot Mike, the Geek Buddies, the Jedi Way, and all these other things. And Steven occasionally pops up and does a show with uh, uh, with me as well, so that you can find more content there on that channel uh, as well. I think that's everything there. So, yeah. It sounds like everything. And, and that's it for this week, and we'll be back I don't know that we're going to conclude it in part three of our exploration of JFK, but we're certainly going to continue what I think has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. So come back next week for our continuation of our exploration of JFK. JFK.